Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast, where in this episode we'll be meeting some of the animation talents behind the new Wes Anderson film, Isle of Dogs. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of our wonderful podcast. And uh, it's going to be a bit more chilled out, I think, than the last episode. <laughs> I think we're a lot more relaxed. We've calmed down. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As you can tell, uh, we're live in the pre-recorded sense from the Cardiff Animation Festival. Yes. Shamai, then. It has been... Uh, you and your crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lovely weekend. It's Wouldn't been, you agree? I certainly would, yes. <laughs> it's nice to, uh, to be at the... I suppose it's safe to say the first Cardiff Animation Festival. It's not really, is it? It's like it's been reborn. Rebooted. Rebooted, yes, yeah. with a fresh new team. And, uh, it's kind of like know. how they bring Ninja Turtles back, but this time they're aliens. But also we enjoy it. This actually- time. <laughs> <laughs> we actually enjoy it. Um, and it's less offensive to the eyes and ears. Um, yeah, so the new, the new Cardiff, the reborn Cardiff Animation Festival. Uh, fantastic, isn't it? Four days. Um, you had an industry day on Thursday. Uh, and then just three jam-packed days full of uh, events uh, here at Chapter for everyone. Just, you know, bits for kids, bits for the adults. Uh, a lot of overlap. Like, I think a lot of the kids' stuff, adults dig, and a lot of the, well, <laughs> I guess there was a bit of a cut-off with some of the adult-only um, programming, but certainly for something like, say, Isle of Dogs, there were definitely some kids in the audience there. Yeah. Not entirely sure if that's a super kid-friendly film, but... Um, they seem fine with it, you know. Some kids are made of sterner stuff. Yeah, know. yeah. Trampires, I'm not sure. Uh, I know that's definitely not meant to be. They're not supposed to see it, but I'm sure of a lot the, of them will dig uh, it. Absolutely, absolutely. Kids get hold of this stuff, whether you like it or not. There's no stopping them. <laughs> uh, we've just seen uh, Grant Orchard's just done his Hey Dougie talk, mm. which was an absolute riot because it was full of uh, an exact mix between animation uh, fans and just loads of kids and like I'm talking toddlers yeah. screaming and yelling at the screen <laughs> and Grant was absolutely incredible Grant Orchard the uh, uh, series director just absolutely on everyone's level uh, yeah. talking to the kids and then talking to the adults and everyone just loved it um, but it was real party atmosphere in that I mean party being like the sort of party that you walk away with a little bag with cake in, <laughs> but you know party atmosphere in there it was fantastic excellent yeah, but it's great to see that show's been doing so well. Mm. It's sort of, as you get older and you start to meet more people who breed, uh, and you try and sort of keep tabs on what it is kids are watching, because you're like, oh, I know there are some great shows that are being produced. They have these great design styles, and you know they're really modern and up-to-date and contemporary. It's like, yeah, my kid loves Paw Patrol. <laughs> I think that's when you know you failed as a parent. No. <laughs> No, they should have the design sensibilities instilled in the eyes <laughs> of 34 year old men do. <laughs> Your kid's kind of dumb, huh? <laughs> Good to see then that um, that's carrying on. Yeah. What else have you kind of seen this uh, weekend that's grabbed you? There's been some. Uh, there's been some fantastic stuff. It's. It's. I don't know what what you make of the screenings because they've, they've absolutely just rammed everything in and everything's up for grabs uh, rather admirably. Mm. Uh, so you've got your students up against professionals, up against uh, commercial work, uh, up against like music videos and things like that, and they're all in 
in the same running, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, how have you found those screenings? It's interesting. Like, the program is like coded. Like the films have like symbols that denote what actually their origins are. So you can go into the program and determine which ones are the student films as like a key. But it's interesting because we've been talking about it recently about like how you know student films done properly and done successfully they are just films in their own right and I guess it does depend on the university how unfair it is to put them against say something that uh, the likes of Nexus or Blue Zoo or whoever are producing but at the same time like there are some amazing auteur films out there that are made by you know individuals and in the same way there are amazing student films that are being kind of put out regardless of the university circumstances like if the artist is strong Mm -hmm. then the quality of the film really does shine through and you do get these films that are comparable to I think professionally quote unquote professionally produced and only produced content yes um so Especially all my students' work, then. Oh, you know, for oh, the yeah. first time this year, <laughs> where, you know, one of my one of my actual students. Uh, I mean, I didn't teach him that much. That's why his film's good. Um, <laughs> Which but, one was uh, his? It's um, Oscars. Oscars. Uh, Baran is uh, thirsty. So there you go. Oh yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it's We're a good, it's with a good him laugh, yesterday. isn't it? Yeah. He'll have been one of the, um, the 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 filmmakers in the Cardiff podcast that we'll have put out to, yes. in the not too distant past. And yeah, some film is nice to sort of see, like you know, some filmmakers' familiar faces return. Mm. One of my absolute favourites of this program is Enough by Anna Mansaris, who did But Milk is Important. And wow. uh, I don't know if you saw this one. If you do, it, it's it, you'll understand why I liked it. It kind of spoke to me. It's about it's a sort of montage of everyone who's just had it with the world, and they've just reached. You know how you kind of like people talk about having fantasies about oh, what if I just push this person off this subway platform or what if I just you know you see a display of stuff at the supermarket like what if I just smashed all this you know but we all fight that urge because we have to adhere to the social compact Um, it's sort of a a film about people who just in the moment don't care about that and just give in to that impulse to just be really antisocial like the kids in the Grant Orchard screening (laughs) earlier on the little four year olds no bless them yeah, some very good stuff, uh, and they're all programmed together as well. So uh, you're looking at the close quarters uh-huh. uh, uh, screening here, and you've got uh, Anna Eichbaut's uh, "Hate for Sale," another guest on uh, one of the earlier podcasts as well. Um, lots of some good stuff in here. Some other people who I don't think are here but made some really good films. There's a lovely film that I just love for its weirdness, a kind of quasi Hitchcockian, but also just kind of silly. There's too many crows. Well, there's too many of these crows as American film. That's one of those films where the title kind of tells the story. Um, but it's wonderful. I love that. Uh, Catherine, a film that uh, uh, I'm pretty sure we've talked about before. Um, it's a really extensive uh, interview on the site if uh, people are interested in that one. Yeah, yeah. she wasn't on the podcast, but um, yeah, there's a lot on... Uh, and we showed it in Manchester. Um, that one has been doing brilliantly. A slightly similar film, I guess, to Enough, in the sense that it's another one of those woolly puppet films, but very nice. It's a sort of early NFTS film by a guy called Matthew Lee called Cabin Pressure. I think yeah. you showed that at MEF as well, didn't it won. you? It won. It won the, uh, the student oh. award. Uh, it, it's interesting as well because it's not his finished film, but it's, it's full of so much potential and so much 
He had two screenings. He had that, and he had a film called Boxed In, which is a pixelation film about a guy. The room gets smaller and smaller and becomes, you know, uh, I'm not going to give any spoilers away. But he did Cabin Pressure on that in the same year. So this guy's really, you know, putting out some uh, high quality stuff. And Cabin Pressure is just, it was just an exercise. It wasn't like a, you know, a, this is my finished. Uh, you know, thesis film or any of that kind of stuff. It was an exercise in character, so he had to mm. design and create two characters who were completely different and put them in the same scenario. And then you've got cabin pressure about this kind of very, uh, very anal character and this very sort of free-living alcoholic uh, mess who doesn't live by the rules. And when you're on an airplane and there's so many kind of rules that you have to stick to, mm. it it sets them off against each other. It's just a mm. wonderful piece of work. Uh, that's from Shorts One in this program. One of my absolute favourites of the whole festival. It just felt really nice. It was called the Northeast Kingdom. Quite long. It's nearly eight minutes. It felt almost NFB-ish, but uh, also kind exactly of what I thought European as well. as well. It's from the States. Interestingly, yeah. it kind of reminded me of a very short-lived. I think it was only two specials. Uh, run they did of uh, the animated version of The Far Side mm. where it worked fine for what it was it didn't really feel like the newspaper comic mm. um, but it was a nice sort of experiment in kind of abstract comedy short film Yeah, and that was something that I kind of got that impression of with this film as well it also reminded me a bit of um, like thinking of the NFB like Patrick Doyon's film Dimanche yeah. a little bit like that yeah that's by Alan Jennings mm-hmm. one to uh, watch out for Angry Vickers. You gotta love a, a <laughs> thing with an angry vicar in or a priest. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> the Yorkshire Sound, obviously being um, or that Yorkshire Sound by Marcus Armitage, uh, the guy who did um, My Dad. Mm. Obviously, um, because it's all about. It says here traditions, cultures, sound, and colour clash on screen. An exploration of the rhythms of Yorkshire. <laughs> and obviously, I'm gonna love that because it's all about um, my uh, my home county. But. Uh, very nicely done. Really, kind of picks apart uh, a soundscape. Yeah, it's like a geographical portrait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. poetic. Very poetic. Mm. Um, you seen Martha? Yeah, it was a bit like three six five. And I think we we went into it with Miles and the other one, but in that kind of jump cutty approach. Yeah. Um, but you know, more disciplined in the sense that it kind of keeps this theme. I think less kind of free range to just do any old thing. Because 365, for people who remember, was like just completely disconnected one second vignettes that um, would just run into one another and not necessarily connect at all. Yeah. It's interesting to see them take a similar approach but kind of stick to a theme. Uh, a few films that I sort of have been doing the rounds for a while but are always nice to see again. Nocturne, I think, is lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, we spoke with her a bit at Encounters, but um, those weren't recorded, so. All oh, right. Uh, we don't get to share that, <laughs> but that's a lovely film. Um, and uh, but it's like it's like design-wise, it's like some, nothing I've ever seen before. Uh, yeah. It's um, so it's not turned by uh, Anne Bray, Brayman, is it? Um, which is, I suppose, the, the, if you've been lazy, which I am, uh, you'd say it's very sort of Tim Burtony, and you could stick a bit of uh, you know Eastern European influences on it and all that kind of stuff. But. Yeah. Again, it's nothing like both of those things that I've just said. It's quite unique. Um, mm. It's just, it's like a, a little bit nightmarish, but mm. the kind of nightmare you enjoy. Yeah, a sort of satisfying nightmare. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mamoon mm. uh, and Vaya, 
from Blue Zoo, which I think we've talked about both of them in the past. Yes. Lovely pieces of work. And yeah, some brilliant uh, special events and stuff. There's a big Trampires exhibition, uh, which I, uh, I think we have a bunch of pictures of up on the site or up on the Facebook or the Instagram. One of the things where we have photos. We put a thing somewhere. That was great to see. I mean, it's sort of... It's just kind of like an organized version of what the studio is like. Like, there's always, like, a corpse or a clown or a zombie somewhere. Yeah. A zombie, trampire. I should get my mythology in check. <laughs> <laughs> Zombies are sick. He takes it very seriously. That was, yeah, the night with the trampires was uh, was an absolute riot. Cause it was yeah. like a, um, it was like a works Christmas party. Everyone was there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everyone was clapping everything that was said. It was just really kind of enthusiastic for this film, which at the moment is in a kind of... Uh, in a kind of distribution limbo, mm. we want it. We want to see it. I want to see it. You know, yeah. I, I went around to the studio um, to visit, and Mike showed me about forty-five minutes worth of footage. Uh, obviously, you've seen a lot more than me because you've actually been through it and painted lightning over it all. Mm. But um, yeah, my job was to take all the wonderful animation that people were doing downstairs and just scribble all over it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I saw 45, about 45 minutes of it, and it is just action-packed, and yeah. it is just, uh, it's going to be a riot, and I really hope that they find the right distributors out there in, uh, in Annecy, when it goes to Annecy. I've seen his earlier films as well. Yeah, that was great. I, I hadn't seen any of that before. Mm. I've seen the short film, obviously, um, but none of the kind of early experiments, and it was interesting seeing how design-wise like of its time it was like um and how the evolution sort of worked and sort of streamlining the design enough to kind of make it retain all of the the key things that make chuck chuck yeah but l losing a certain level of kind of unnecessary detail i suppose it really does remind me his older stuff of older will venton um the kind of will venton stuff that isn't really very widely known there was did you ever see the one about like the drunk guy in the gallery that will venton did Oh, I might have done years ago. It was, it was kind of a good a little animation cheat where he, he really struggled getting animation characters to walk because they all looked drunk. So he just made a film about a drunk guy. Nice, nice. <laughs> he didn't have to worry about it. Yeah. Um, but Will Vinton would, would also have a certain level of detail in the faces and expression and hair that Mike uh, has really kind of, you know... I don't know if he would cite Will Vinton as a specific influence. It just strikes me as a big similarity. Certainly in the feature film and in the, the uh, Raging Balls of Steel Justice, it's not quite the same. It's more, like, um, production-friendly, yeah. the way they design them. But still sculpt through, which is this horrendous, <laughs> <laughs> labor-intensive way thing to put your uh, animators through. But they all did it. They yeah. all stepped up to the plate. Uh, and, it just and took so, a while. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that, um, seeing the new Chuck stuff and seeing the older Chuck stuff some of the expressions that he's sculpting you can tell that this young Mike Mort really mm. um, at the time enjoyed doing there's a lot more ash from Evil Dead in the facial oh, yeah. expression <laughs> expressions than like I suppose Chuck nowadays is more of a sliced alone or a yeah. kind of uh, but when it was made of that time it was very much um, there's a bit where he turns around and he's got this look on his face and it, I've seen it so many times in, in, in uh, Evil Dead yeah um, yeah absolutely fantastic I suppose um the yeah, early that, that B-movie element was always there. Yes. From the start, certainly. So cross between Robert Morgan and Will Vinton, I suppose, is that yeah. how you, when you see the slimy monsters and uh, and all that kind of stuff. That's what I, wanna, what I would love to try and do 
is get Rob Morgan and Mike Mort together. I kept I brought that up a couple of times with Mike. Yeah. It was around the time Rob was doing that basket case film. Uh, and I know Mike likes basket cases as, as well. But that might be a bit like getting the gatekeeper and the key master together. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, we'll see. So it was great. Yeah, it was lovely to see like an actual finished clip of the film mm. um, with music and everything. Because I've, I've, I've seen the whole film and I know, you know, a handful of minutes of it back to front. The bits that I sort of worked on, and I have a pretty, I've seen the whole thing a couple of times, but without a proper score. Um, like I, I'm more familiar with the version with placeholder voices mm. and placeholder music from like Hellraiser three. Right. And I'll kind of, <laughs> it'll be a shame actually because my scene um, will have completely different music, I guess, when I see it in the cinema. But it will be cool to see it all with the sound effects and stuff. Yeah. Uh, what I guess is official news because they they announced it on the talk, and this really made me happy because this was just like a hopeful thing at the time is that they got um, uh, Jennifer Saunders doing one of the voices and Paul Whitehouse doing another Fantastic. two uh, two people that I, I love uh, I up until like I don't know if you've seen Ghost Stories yet but I hadn't seen Paul Whitehouse in anything really good like that for a long time and it He's just reminded me Stalin. how great he is. Oh yeah? He was in Death of Stalin, oh, he was that, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's fantastic yet. in anything. I mean you could get Paul Whitehouse to do every voice in, in Chuck Steele. Yeah. You really could. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, Jennifer Saunders I just adore. Yeah. Uh, I think the hope with Trampires is it comes out around Halloween. Yeah. Um, I think the closest to Halloween the better for and I, I know nothing about like you know the red tape or whatever that, I mean it's such a unique and as you said anomaly as far as filmmaking goes as far as how it was funded yeah it's got to be an impossible thing to speculate what a distribution plan for it would possibly be mm. and it would change from distributor to distributor so I think that a Halloween release is perfect uh, I think it'd be worth waiting an extra couple of months to get that but yeah I mean some 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 people like to give these things a big long run I mean if you go on yeah. something like launching films you can see films that are on the slate for like a year two years and you see some places really go far out but if it finds a small indie or you know some someone with a big uh, range of cinemas that can distribute it, it you know it needs to be seen in the cinemas yeah it's gonna be an interesting one hopefully this year hopefully this year so also representing the stop mo output of late there's an early man screening a dementia-friendly early man screening. Mm. I that was a nice little consideration. Very nice. Uh, which apparently went down very well. Animation knows no boundaries, really, doesn't it? You know, yeah. it's, it's it's fun for everyone. Everyone can enjoy it. Everyone can, and especially with with early man, it's a very simple film in yeah. its kind of uh, in its in its way. So anyone can enjoy it at any age, at any level, and it's just a lovely thing to bring everyone together. Yeah. Uh, and then so they did a, uh, another screening with a Q&A afterwards mm. as well with I think it was Merlin I think it came over for that yes. um, lovely stuff uh, I didn't go to the Captain Morton screening in the end I was having some, some tech difficulties with the later presentation I had some interesting things I did that. I did it was um, <laughs> it was it was a little bit like um, like Count Arthur Strong <laughs> uh, in terms of in terms of the uh, the producer who who came, Robin Lyons came to mm. to present the film, and and he was like talking to the projectionist and he was like, can you can you play the film but play it on silent, and then he'd play the film really loud <laughs> and then it'd stop and then he'd be no no now do it on silent and then the lights would go on and off and then <laughs> it was just like it was. It was like that kind this of. This is why you have to have a tech rehearsal. Yeah, well, 
Um, it was it was really funny, but it was it was you know down to the sort of I suppose meeting meeting bones of it. You know, uh, it was um, uh, Robin Lyons, uh, em- Emily Nicholson, mm-hmm. um, that were there to uh, talk through uh, the process of, 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 of making the film as well, and Henry Nicholson was there as well. Uh, and this was a film I wasn't entirely aware of. I knew there were three stop-motion films going on in the UK at the same time. I knew we had Isle of Dogs, I knew we had Trampires, and I knew we had Early Man going on. But I didn't know that, you know, over in Ireland, uh, Captain Morton was also uh, scooping up or soaking up uh, stop-motion animators as well. Um, but there it is. It's, uh, it's been made it's, it, together with uh, Nuku Film, uh, the Estonian uh, animation company. And, uh, yeah, it, it seems like a... An all right, an all right piece of work. Very James and the Giant Peach. Oh, okay. Because uh, cool. it's it's basically about a a young ginger lad who uh, goes on a little shrinks and goes on a little voyage, and there's a spider and a ladybird and a grasshopper, and uh, he's they end up on the Empire State Building. Yeah, he's got an evil auntie and, <laughs> and, and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, that could, I'm sorry to say that that's that's inescapable. Um, and I'm sure everyone will make that observation, and it won't be uh, very, terribly unique of me to have said that. Um, but it looks like a good film. And yeah. It looks. I mean, enough time has passed since uh, since James and the Giant Peach for it to be its own thing. Well worth so, watching um, as well. So well worth seeing. We got the breadwinner this afternoon. We've not seen that yet. But uh, Mark Mullery from uh, Cartoon Saloon is coming to give a, a talk about uh, about the making of the breadwinner. Mm. Which, uh, which I think we haven't seen that in the sense of the festival. Like we haven't been to the event yet. Yes. When we're recording this. Yeah. Um, because people are going to be like, didn't they have the breadwinner on three episodes ago? Yeah. <laughs> we don't watch any of the films. <laughs> has it actually come out yet, or is that May? May. May. We have okay. to wait until May until it's come out. Right. Um, I mean, there's a great thing about... It's so worth reminding it, people it's on its way. But it's this great thing about visiting animation festivals and stuff. You know, you see it, all this stuff before it comes out, and you get to go around and go, <laughs> I've saw it before it came out in cinemas, I saw it like a year ago. <laughs> so uh, you get to be that person who everybody loves. <laughs> Uh, other things that are on at the at the festival, obviously keeping to the uh, uh, the Welsh uh, theme as well. We've got uh, Welsh animation classics, so there's a few bits of uh, of Gogs in there, and uh, a few ah. of the uh, animated tales from the world that were produced over here. Uh, and then you've got the uh, Welsh B A M E uh, shorts, um, and some screenings of the of Japanese animation. Well, what did you make of that? Did you see that? Uh, I haven't seen it, but I. I've heard a lot of people saying that it was one of their favourite things. Yes. Because um, there is this festival that also takes place here at Chapter mm-hmm. um, that is specifically Japanese films, and so they've curated a selection of animation. Uh, the thing that people have been saying is how much, how diverse the animation is, like how diverse the styles and the processes are. And I think that it's sort of forgivable for us naive, simple minded Westerners hear the phrase Japanese animation and have a very specific image in our heads that's, you know, pretty much the image of a certain popular studio and not much diversity beyond that. And so it's sort of nice to be a little bit more educated on that and see just what a range of stuff is being produced over there. 
There's also a, a, a big leaning on, on the idea that uh, anime is uh, the other thing that you can get from Japan. Right. You get um, Studio Ghibli and you get anime. Yeah. Um, and there's no in between. But I suppose, being as this, uh, this program did do, uh, speaking to people who went to see it, was that it was full of a lot more than that. Yes, there were uh, anime inspired uh, shorts in there. But it, it showed the real uh, uh, depth of, uh, of, of availability from uh, from Japan, which we've seen in, in Annecy in the past, and we've seen yeah. in other places. So it is all, it's, it's all out there, but it's nice to see it in Wales. <laughs> this kid laughs like the monster baby in Brain Dead. <laughs> <laughs> I just laugh like Motley. That's, uh, we're getting all the characters out here, aren't we? Industry day went well talking to people afterwards there were some people actually just came for that day which I thought was kind of interesting mm. people uh, I think were quite happy with the opportunity to meet some of these people and actually get a sense of what exactly it is they do and what the process is because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about you know how you get something on TV yeah um, and you know I've heard some horror stories of people who've kind of taken their Rupert Pupkin approach of just showing up to like a studio with yeah. you know, a portfolio under their arm. Um, did I ever tell you the story of my, my friend who tried to work at Ardman and now has a big chip on his shoulder about animation? Yes. Yes, you have. Okay. yes you have. Have I told you the story of um, how my friend got a publishing deal? No, I don't think so. My friend, he wants to get into uh, illustration and he's, he's got a few books published now which is great and he's been winning a few awards. Um, but how he got his first agent was very interesting because he went to and this is by no means an advert for you guys to go out and do this it's not a, not a way of, of doing it but he went around uh, publishing studios just knocking on the door you know just trying to get in and he and he, and he figured right i've only got 24 hours left um to you know talk to get an agent really while i'm in london so he, he went to this agency and he thought right instead of just knocking on the door and saying hey i'm a, I'm a here's my portfolio can I have a look at it and being turned away what he did is he looked on the publish, publisher's uh, Twitter account, found out the person he wanted to speak to, and figured, and, and they put on their Twitter account that they had applied to be on a game show. Mm. And so he rang the buzzer and said, Hi, I'm from the game show. <laughs> I want to talk about your application. And so he got in, got into the office, and saw the portfolio. And then he went, look, I'm going to be, I'm going to be straight with you now. I'm, I'm here to show you my work. And she went, I admire your, you know, <laughs> your bravery. And he got a, he got a uh, you know, a consultation with her. That's funny. Yeah. It's a risk. It's, you know, it's you gotta, a risk, yeah. You gotta, I mean, that could have gone... It could have been in prison now. ...phenomenally badly. <laughs> the, uh, I don't think I told this story on the podcast yet, but there was a guy who tried to do a similar thing. Thank you. This is just like a story I, I heard and just got like anxious as he was telling it. He had done an animation degree around the same time as me. Uh, I forget where, but he moved to Bristol to uh, pursue his career. And uh, I think he assumed he would quite shortly be working at Ardman because yeah. they were the, the, the only game in town, which automatically sort of showed some insight into his lack of research because Bristol's full of games in town. His approach was to show up with the portfolio. Uh, it's actually a pretty approachable venue, um, one of their studios. It's pretty central in Bristol. You just you can walk up and they'll let you in and you can talk to the receptionist. 
So he that came poor in, receptionist. He came in with his DVD and a CV, a printed CV and a burned DVD, and he handed it over. And he's like, "Yeah, I'd, I'd like a job, please." And uh, she's like, "Oh, okay. Well, usually we, um, I think it was like 2006 at this point. Yeah. If you could send a showreel online and send it every few months, just to remind us that you're still at it, because after a few months we'll get rid of." whatever links we have archived and we'll clear the database so just make sure you keep in touch regularly so that advice went through some kind of Rube Goldberg <laughs> variation in his brain like that da, 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 da. and he interpreted it as I'm going to show up to Ardman every week with the same showreel and the same CV it wasn't like he was taking it home with him he was bringing a newly burned DVD and a newly printed CV and just like handing it over to what was perhaps initially a different receptionist but then uh, he did it enough times that they all knew him and it got to a point where one of them was like okay look I need to show you where all of the DVDs go and showed him the huge pile of DVDs they get sent unsolicited and it's like you know do keep applying but not like and he just wouldn't take that wow. as and in the end they had to sort of formally request he not <laughs> darken their door now the reason I know this story is that he told it to me in this kind of like, can you believe how elitist these people are and what a <laughs> click it is? I'm like, you sound like a psychopath. <laughs> and he's a lovely, he's a lovely guy. He's a gentle giant, mm. but you know, you need to get to know gentle giants before you can appreciate their gentleness. Because until then, he's just a big scary Scotsman. Yes, <laughs> that kept showing up week after week. And stood then, in the rain over the road of Markman <laughs> with his portfolio thunder clapping in the background. <laughs> so sometimes Hook's Bar works very well. Yes. Uh, I like, I mean, I think your friend had, there was a nice little bit of like sneaky ingenuity to it yeah. that really, depending on who the recipient was, could have been taken as this person's a creepy psycho stalker. But thankfully, they seemed to had a sense of humour about it. I mean, like, he, he tore up the Data Protection Act when he did it. He really kind of, uh, you know, Zuckerberg did, you know. But if they posted it on their, like, public Twitter, then yeah, that's well, the yeah. thing. That, I think, is the big sort of misconception about, like, you know, if your tweets aren't protected, yeah. it's not like people are spying on your, like, secret private diary. Mm. So, so uh, last episode, well, it was quite cat-themed. Uh, between Garfield and Simon's cat. Yes. This time around, it's dog-themed. We've got a whole bunch of people from Isle of Dogs. We had to keep them separate then. But yeah, we, uh, we're going to be talking with Tim Allen, the key animator, uh, in a little bit. Laura has a chat with him. We also were able to chat with a bunch of the talents. As part of the Cardiff Animation Festival, we did a special on-stage presentation. This is going to be a little edited from what the actual presentation was. It was a very visual-heavy presentation, as you'll recall we were given a bunch of really nifty exclusive footage and stuff that uh, none of you are going to get to see. <laughs> unless why you, you have to come to festivals. Yeah. This is if you were here at the festival, you would have got to see it, but oh well, you missed out. <laughs> but what you'll get to hear, of course, is some of the lovely uh, stories and insights about what goes into making a film as special and unique and intriguing as Isle of Dogs is. You saw it last night I did, yeah. was it the first time you saw it first time I saw it yeah mm. I thought it was absolutely wonderful see I'm, I'm not uh, my opinion on, on Wes Anderson is n neither hot nor cold I, yeah. I appreciate his work I like his stuff he's very good <laughs> um, at what he does 
but I'm not one of these people that's going to be a die-hard Wes Anderson fan and then if he releases something slightly too quirky or slightly not quirky enough I'm gonna, gonna you know lose my mind yeah um, but what I saw with Isle of Dogs was just uh, an absolute riot of uh, you know cinematography and color and, and, and action and whimsy gorgeous timing yeah um, the whole thing just really uh, spectacular the thing about the Wes Anderson style which isn't super established because he's only really done one animation film with animated segments in other films or like oh Grand the Life Budapest Aquatic. and uh, yeah the Life, yeah uh, the Life Aquatic is a film that, because I have a similar kind of attitude toward him, it's a little bit more hot and cold with me in the sense that there are a few of his films that I really do love, and then a few that I can just sort of take or leave. So I really like like Rushmore, for example, and the Grand Budapest Hotel I thought was lovely, but I could sort of take or leave like the Life Aquatic or the Darjeeling Limited. The Life Aquatic is one I think I should like more because of all the stop motion. But I felt like there was some unnecessary kind of cruelty in the story of that <laughs> film. Yeah. Like, there's a character that dies near the end that just the function of that didn't seem to serve the story at all. I was so worried about stuff like that happening in Isle of Dogs, and there was a little bit of a threat of that from time to time, where you think some horrible fate has befallen characters. I won't go into specifics. And then he's done the good thing of, like, knowing when to reel back and knowing when to sort of stand firm. Yeah. Like, there are some characters that say, stay dead. But they're not the characters you care about. Play dead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Back to the dad jokes. Um, I guess there is an unfair death in it, but it's like it does actually serve the story rather well. Yes. It it serves to cement the the character of the villain. Yeah. Um, and the ludicrousness of his cause. Mm. Um, and also, like, it gives a lot of humanity to um, another character who's sort of a partner of the character. It's it's a just. Very well so thought out character wise. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I love the human characters and the dog characters. I love the way they're both sort of portrayed. I, it was great, sort of, we'll hear about this in a minute, but like the unnecessary, mean spirited degree of labor by having one of the main characters have 200 freckles mm. <laughs> that have to constantly be animated. Replacement faces and 200 freckles. How much was it? 297. 297. Nearly, oh, yeah. And the different tones that had to be consistent. And I remember like watching that at the time going, oh my God, like this must have bummed them out so much. Yeah. <laughs> and that she's a great character. Yeah. Um, that inexplicable hair and but wonderful kind of manner about her. And One friend of mine, it was interesting because I got a, a bit of initial flack a bit from appropriating Japanese culture because anytime a western filmmaker will set a film somewhere that isn't where he was born it has to be appropriation mm. obviously I don't really know what people are feeling if they're feeling that if I see it something that say takes the piss out like if the Simpsons go to England and they make all sorts of jokes about fish and chips and roundabouts yeah, I yeah. don't really lose any sleep I kind of get that it's a joke and those are generally more sort of purposefully mean-spirited about stereotypes. Mm. They're not like... I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know if you could maybe even equate it in that case. Just Meanwhile, yeah. The Simpsons is pissing everyone off these days <laughs> by being very glib about sort of firmly not con updating their sort of depiction of our poo. Or and, and changing Lisa in, in, you know, the character of Lisa, who's, yeah. who would, would usually be the, the activist in that sense, to yeah. have her turn to the audience and say, get over it. Yeah. 
No, that was a very... To me, it didn't sting because it's not a show I have any connection to anymore. Hmm. Like, I do... I I think a lot of people do consider the version of it now as this kind of spin-off of a show that was very good for about eight or nine years. Yeah. Um, And the character inconsistencies are just sort of part and parcel of any given episode. But... It was an interesting thing because I'd never felt like Apu, and I, I do want to watch this documentary at some point because mm. it obviously it's not well maybe not obviously but it certainly never occurred to me as a white kid growing up in the Cotswolds that it was an insensitive characterization. He always seemed like one of the characters you rooted for, maybe because British racism is always so ugly and mean that that sort of casual stereotyping of an ethnicity seems by comparison to not be at all harmful and you know I guess that's just a sort of level of unawareness that we're kind of adapting to as we get older Uh, but that was an odd thing for the Simpsons to kind of double down and say no we're going to resolutely not adapt and not care about your stance on it Mm. and I don't really know how much of the documentary is even specifically about the Simpsons or if it's just about that sort of general um, culture yeah Uh, I think I I was talking about it with someone and they were surprised actually they just never occurred to them that it wasn't an Indian guy who did the voice yeah um, a lot of people don't know it's that guy like because he's he's probably of all the people in the cast the most visible in terms of live action films I think a lot of people don't know that he actually does half of the voices he's, he's also in got the, the biggest range as well because he does like Wiggum as well yeah. and, and uh, you know does a, a, a big variety of the, of the characters um, Hank Azaria yeah it? yeah so yeah, it was interesting, I was talking, well, I was observing a conversation on Facebook about a take on the sort of appropriation element of Isle of Dogs from a friend of mine. It's been interesting seeing people's kind of different take-homes and discussions about it. I don't think people are really super upset about it. I mean, I do know the co-writer is Japanese and he's sort of gone on record as being like, well, <laughs> I think it's all right, you know? Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't seem like something anyone could really be upset by. It's just a sort of joyful exercise in filmmaking. What I find hard to watch, just the premise of any kind of neglect on animals, and Mm. the initial premise is, of course, it's dogs that have been left to die on an island, which is pretty horrifying, and a lot of them are in pretty bad shape, and that kind of bums me out. But then that sort of core heroism, and that sort of once the story kind of begins and you get that sort of sense of character from this pack that have formed there's one particular pack and yeah they're not leader that he sort of wants to be anything but the leader but he is kind of the leader yeah, just yeah. sort of by virtue of what sort of character he has yeah um that's just a wonderful dynamic yeah I love, and, the, I love the names in that one I love that they're all basically the names are what you'd expect a top dog oh, yeah. to be called as well and there's that beautiful kind of like uh, it's not attention because they're all like top dogs, but they're all most like Jeff Goldblum and, and yeah. uh, you know Bill Murray and all that lot. And you've got this kind of like really uh, Ed Norton. You've got this sort of um, cute, yeah. you know, side to these that call Rex and, and, and <laughs> all this kind of King and Duke. It's it's such such a well toned and well paced uh, uh, use of character. Yeah. You know. My my absolute favourite has to be Tilda Swinton. As Oracle, because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sort of weird to say because it's a pug, but it is perfect casting. Yes, like, she's such a dignified screen presence. Yeah, that brought such a lovely characterization to that 
the few seconds, the few minutes of screen time her character in Isle of Dogs has is so memorable. Just little, and you know, a lot of it is a credit to the animators. Um, yes, absolutely. And the puppet uh, design and stuff, who uh, uh, they said, they say in the panel here that um, it was designed by Nathan Flynn, who wasn't on the panel, but he was there. His brother was on the panel, Josh. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what, who, how they worked out who got to be on the panel. I would have been more than happy to have both of them on. But. Flipped a coin. Ah, uh, maybe. I suppose that that's, that's the point, really, with the, uh, with the characters, is that I really wanted to stay in that world with, and find more about these, uh, you know, the dogs and, uh, and all that kind of... And, and at the end of the day, that's when you leave an audience wanting more, that's the key to a successful film, I always find. I'll watch that mm-hmm. film again and again because I want to spend more time with... Oracle and no. uh, uh, Duke and Chief and all the all the other characters um, uh, in the film because they have such fleeting uh, fleeting glimpses of these unique uh, characters and, and that is testament as you say to, to the animators to this uh, world that was created and uh, Wes Anderson's input though it is overriding we got to we got to keep an eye on the on the fact that it's the animators that are really uh, uh, putting the, they're all into this film and and that shines through. Uh, really well and we're very fortunate that we have two of the main animators in this episode which is absolutely fantastic and uh, I think if we hear from the panel first um, this will be uh, Josh Flynn who was the sculptor fabricator one of the uh, the team of that uh, Kerry Dyer head of Puppet Hospital she'll explain what that means in a minute and uh, the lead animator Kim Kukulair, uh and yeah it was just amazing to chat with them and uh, I'm glad we're able to share it with you so let's uh Let's pass it over to them. I would say it's probably safe to say that most, if not all of you, have seen Isle of Dogs at this point. Well, it is just such a tremendous film. It's one of my favorites of this year. I'm especially happy to be welcoming on this stage some very, very key members of the film's crew. I shall introduce them now, and we will hear from them presently. Josh Flynn, fabricator. Kerry Dyer, Head of Puppet Hospital. And Lead Animator, Kim Kukulair. The vague plan is we'll be going Josh, Kerry, Kim, but by all means, everyone do weigh in uh, at any point. Uh, it's going to be a pretty relaxed affair, as I think has kind of been established. Starting off with Josh. Josh is a bit of a force of nature in the world of contemporary stop motion, sculpting, fabricating. Uh, Josh has worked on some amazing films, including Frank and Weenie. I think some of you were here last night for the Trampires presentation. Josh worked on that as well. Uh, among many others, among his recent achievements, as I think some of you will have seen in the lobby, is Dottie which is the amazing big pink round mascot for this very festival. And it's a wonderful little item. Detachable head and everything. Josh uh, also does a lot of work with his brother. He's part of the duo Sculpt Double. And um, I guess we could sort of start a little bit with your background leading up to that. As brothers, were you kind of simultaneously interested in this world? Yeah, I've worked with my brother pretty much my whole life. Uh, I can't really avoid him. He's in the audience, he's among you. Over there, have a wave. He's not actually shy. Um, he would be on stage, but they're not on a 
chairs here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been working with him my whole life. We, um, we're, we're actually twins. Um, we, we tend to get along. We, um, we tend to be hired on the same jobs. I guess there's a bit of a rivalry between us, but that's good because we're trying to outdo each other and, and it's sort of maybe helped us uh, improve the, the quality of our work. Yeah, and we, we've always uh, had an interest in, in animation and, and stop motion specifically. Yeah, we, we were making films together when we were younger, and it just sort of continued throughout, uh, throughout our lives. And yeah, um, I actually studied stop motion at the University of Glamorgan, which is now the University of South Wales. Um, I don't know if there's any students in the audience. Yeah, hello. <laughs> Rambunctious lot, aren't they? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and uh, sort of since studying uh, stop motion animation, we sort of um, went in more of a sculpt sculpture and puppet fabrication sort of direction and that's how we we sort of entered the industry do you have sort of specific areas of focus each of you or do you both kind of do the same thing um when we're working together we tend to um maybe split it in half so uh if we're sculpting a character nathan might sculpt the body and i would sculpt the head or you know vice versa we're uh, it's not always, you know, me sculpting the head and, and him doing the body. We, we tend to swap it around, but um, yeah, we're, we tend to be, we seem to be quite good at, at collaborating. And there's almost like a, a telepathic thing going on where we just we understand what what we want. A twin thing. Yeah, spooky twin thing. Yeah. So you end up working on some of the same projects. Do you like? go together for the interviews, or do people seek you out as a double act at this point? Yeah, I guess it's, it's always, it just the way it happens, it always mm. seems to be the both of us, um, if we're both available. Uh, I mean, we have done you know things separately, but um, especially in all the, all the feature films, we tend to be hired as a pair, so uh, it's just the way it's turned out, I suppose. Mm -hmm. As far as this particular project then, because I know you worked on uh, Grand Budapest Hotel as well. Yes, that's right. Were you on M Fantastic Mr. Fox? Or was uh, no, I was actually in university when that film was being made. So, so Budapest Hotel was your first time with Wes? Yes, uh, yes. How was that? Like, um, as a uh, experience? It was interesting. Um, obviously, I heard stories about how particular he could be about details and things. Um, for Grand Budapest Hotel, we were only sculpting uh, very small characters for a short sequence. It was a, a ski chase sequence. It's uh, one of the only stop motion parts of the film, otherwise the rest is live action. We were working on that for about eight weeks, um, and we only had one, it was three sculptors in total, and each, each of us only had one character to sculpt, but I think we ended up making maybe eight versions of each character, you know, adapting the sizes and the scale and the details each time, so that was yeah, a good taste of how how he, how he works and, and his decision making. Um, yeah, it was a, maybe a good good trial run up to for, for this film in, in preparing us. Yeah. So um, I'm sort of curious because there was it wasn't a film that was shrouded in secrecy, but it was there was an air of mystery around it a little bit, and they were certainly when they would distribute the early teaser clips. There hadn't there wasn't an awful lot of it to begin with. It was kind of trickled out. Was there a sort of air of we want to keep this under wraps as much as possible? As it was, uh, I didn't really notice that no. from the inside. I was really desperate to uh, to be able to share it with a, you know, with an audience just to see how how they would uh, react. Um, yeah, um, I, I wouldn't say it was sort of we were deliberately holding back. Um, mm -hmm. It was a big relief to finally see the trailer because uh, that was one of the first times where I'd seen the replacement faces with all the um, the seam lines removed. I was, you know, quite quite interested to see how that would look in, in the final thing. Um, obviously, we saw rushes during production, uh, 
uh, and they were always very impressive, very amazed with what the, the animators managed to do. Um, but yeah, they obviously they always had uh, maybe lines on the face, so uh, yeah, I was, I was looking forward to, uh, to seeing a, a finalized thing. Yeah. Mm. So I started on the film in August 2015. Um, the first day we were sculpting docks. Interestingly, we didn't have any drawings to work from. Um, West pretty much told Andy Gent, who is head of the puppet department, um, you know, sculpt me some dogs. That was all we had. So at the beginning, uh, there was two sculptors named Christy Matter and Valma Hiblin. Uh, they, they were the first to tackle the, the dogs, and they were mostly just experimenting with different sizes and uh, forms and, and styles. Um, eventually, they sort of honed in what Wes was interested in, and through various you know, hundreds of emails back and forth, um, so they sort of established the, the main look of the dogs. Um, me and my brother, we sculpt, started later than them. And the first characters we sculpted were Jupiter, which was my sculpt. And Nathan was working on Oracle, the pug. Um, it was nice working on those two characters together because they, they are a bit of a pair. So it was uh, good working on those at the same time. What we would do is take photographs um, and email them to Wes. That's how we were dealing with him. It was all via email. And he'd, uh, he'd respond with um, you know, little notes about how we could adapt it or ways that it could be changed. Um, Jupiter actually had three legs to begin with at one point. That was in the script. Uh, it was later changed to four legs because Wes had another dog in the film which was going to have three legs and you don't want too many three-legged dogs in a film. Uh, another thing about Jupiter is um, he has very straight legs as to most of the dogs in the film. It's kind of a cartoony dog look is not really anatomically correct. You'd expect more of a, an ankle bend and a knee. But uh, this is something Wes uh, really responded to from the, from the sculpts, so that was uh, applied to all of the, uh, the dog characters. The humans were different. We were actually provided with pencil drawings of the characters. Only one, though, from maybe the front. We weren't giving a wide selection. Uh, it later, I later found out that this is because Wes was only really fond of the characters, or at least for Atari. From the front-on angle, he'd, he'd been given other drawings from the side, but he maybe wasn't as happy with those. So he just sort of threw it to us to sort of adapt the character in, in a three-dimensional form just to see what we come up with and how, uh, how that might look. Um, the first character I sculpted was actually Professor Watanabe. Um, and I was expecting lots of changes and notes back from him, as was all, all, the, all of the sculptors, because, you know, uh, you expect that from Wes Anderson. But... Amazingly, it was actually, it, it sailed through the approval process first time, so I was kind of shocked. Um, and then I guess because I was available first, that's the reason I was sculpting on Atari, who I guess is the main human character. The gloves are actually inspired by, I think they were Russian cosmonaut gloves. There's a sort of astronaut feel about him. Um, obviously, they'd be no good in space because they're fingerless. <laughs> But, uh, oh, another thing, um, Wes in the video, he mentioned how the character of Atari was heavily inspired by the voice actor, Koyu Rankin. They actually had him uh, take a photo of his own hand as, as reference for the Atari. So we were actually working from the, you know, the, the voice actor's image, which is kind of unique for this film. None of the other characters had that. From the uh, original head sculpt, we pretty much needed to make three things. Um, obviously, we had the face, which is the main part, but we also needed a, a head core, which is what this is, or at least the beginnings of a head core. The head core is sort of like a solid skull, which allows the faces to sort of register into place. Um, the third thing that we needed from the head sculpt is 
sort of the, the neck, ears, and the back of the head. We, we called this the balaclava, because it was um, sort of like a silicon skin which went over the, the head core. The mold makers did an incredible job. Uh, they were led by uh, Cormac McKee. Um, they had to be very careful with the faces, not di distort them, because any slight squashing or anything, and they wouldn't register on the face, and it would be useless. The way we, um, we went about tackling the, the lip sync and the uh, mouth replacements, they were, they were a separate thing. So for Atari, he had replacement faces of his whole expression, and also uh, certain faces would be swapped out so he could have replacement mouthpieces. So this is the way I was testing the faces. We had a, uh, a testing rig. Um, his, his portrait was sort of locked in place so it didn't move. Um, we'd have a laptop set up with uh, the Dragon software, which is the same stuff that the animators use to animate the faces, and a camera to take photos or, or stills. We had mirrors either side so we could see the character from multiple angles just to check that the, uh, the forms were sort of jutting forwards, um, sometimes with the mouth replacements. If you got them wrong and you had too much mass, then it sort of moved forwards and maybe they'd look a little bit like Homer Simpson or something. <laughs> so there are actually uh, you know, hundreds of faces to test, um, both in the clay form and in the castings. Uh, we were testing throughout the whole production, pretty much. There were also specials made for like the hospital sequence when he's sort of all bruised and he has stitches on them. Those stitches were applied uh, one by one, by hand, sort of on camera, trying to get them in the right place. <laughs> We'd uh, test the phonetic shapes as well for the, for the mouth replacements, because obviously, um, yeah, to, when you're breaking down dialogue, you, you break it down into simple phonetics. So you have a like, ooh, ah, e kind of thing. Um, there are also others, it goes beyond phonetics. There are special expressions which Wes wanted uh, as, as replacement mouth pieces. Um, I'd say Wes was very fond of showing Atari's teeth. There's a lot of parts during the film when he sort of just grits his teeth. I think there was three different gritted teeth uh, mouth, mouth plugs made for the film. He really liked seeing the character's teeth and uh, having the gaps visible between them. He was very specific about seeing those. After finishing, or not finishing, but most of the way through Atari, I was also tackling Tracy. Um, I didn't actually sculpt the original Tracy, I was just making her face replacements. Uh, Tracy was more of a challenge than Atari. Um, a lot of the problems were solved with Atari when we were sort of developing this replacement face technique. But uh, yeah, freckles are a whole new thing. Um, usually with stop-motion replacement faces, you want, you'd want to avoid freckles at all costs because it's, it's a nightmare. Um, Tracy has 297 freckles <laughs> on every face. Um, and obviously, you need those freckles to stay in the exact same place for every replacement face, otherwise it looks like bugs are crawling a lot across the face when you animate it. Uh, so what we did, I was collaborating with Angela Kylie, who was head of the paint department. It was her job to, unfortunately, paint every single freckle one by one. Um, to make her job slightly easier, we decided to incorporate the freckles into the sculpt. So what I would do is, um, sort of very lightly, uh, using a rotary tool, I'd leave a, a slight marking, a slight flattening of the surface for each freckle position. Annoyingly, she also has different colored freckles. There are three different tones of freckles, which we had to get right. Um, Angela Kylie, she painted the original face uh, you know, with these different tones, and Wes really liked it. And once Wes likes it, you can't change it. You have to stick with it. Uh, so yeah, there were different colored dots on there, red and, and black inks used to denote which color or shade of freckle was used. Uh, yeah, that, was, that took a very long time. I was literally um, like on camera, on the rig with a pencil marking out where each individual freckle needed to be. 
Also, you needed to animate the freckles. Obviously, they don't just stay static on, on the whole face. Um, if, if the brown was, was coming down, you'd have to animate the freckles moving down uh, realistically as well. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I actually did leave my initials in there, almost like as a star constellation. Because um, I spent so long doing it, I thought I had to. I won't tell you where it is, because um, maybe it would ruin it. Um, I wasn't expecting it to be visible, but there is actually a shot in the film uh, where it's, at, it's a very close-up shot of Tracy's face, and it's right at the, the perfect angle to see it. And I was kind of... I didn't realise it would be that obvious, but um, yeah, good luck spotting it. <laughs> so obviously the dogs were tackled in a different way. They didn't have replacement faces. They were mechanical. They had ball and socket paddles and, uh, and hinges, which allowed the expressions to be changed. Um, so this is just one example. Obviously this, this sort of technique was developed on Fantastic Mr. Fox, um, and it worked very, very well. Um, so it was sort of... Uh, a similar thing was used on this film, um, but it Im improved. And I think, uh, yeah, the amateur team, they did an incredible job. They, uh, they really sort of raised the bar and, and improved over what they'd already achieved on Fat Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, so, yeah, uh, especially Chief, I think he's uh, just incredible. What the, um, the range of expressions that uh, they managed to get out of that uh, character was uh, yeah, really incredible. Kerry also... Um Brilliant model maker as well. Um, interesting job title on this one, Head of Puppet Hospital. Um, and I guess we'll, we'll get to what that actually is in a sec. But I'd also love to hear a bit more about uh, who you are, where you came from, and how you wound up on this film. Okay, hi, I'm Kerry. Um, I come from technically Bristol, not really. I come from a town outside of Bristol called Yate. I studied animation at university, um, actually at uh, Newport University. Um, which is also now University of South Wales. They combined to become a mega university. Um, I do, I love stop motion. Actually, I started out as an animator, wanting to be an animator. Um, and the more I worked in stop motion, the more I just I wanted to build the puppets. I wanted to kind of get like inside how they worked. And uh, yeah, I love making puppets. Um, so, puppet hospital. Anyone here know what a puppet hospital is? Anyone? No hands. One, two. You worked on the film. <laughs> I would expect you to know what it is. <laughs> um, so essentially it's a maintenance department. Um, and most films will have a maintenance department or part of the puppet department will do maintenance. On this one, Andy, Jen, his workshop was off-site. So I think the 50, 50 odd people at the workshop? I think it was 60. 60. The 60 people at his workshop, they, they weren't that far away. They were 20 minutes down the road, but you need people on site to take care of the puppets and you know, make sure they look nice and fix them when they've got a broken leg or their fingers fallen off or, or whatever. And we, we did more than that, but essentially what a puppet hospital is, is a maintenance department. It's a, you know, a fun name for that. Um, but a lot of the rest of what we did um, was going on set and making sure that all the puppets look nice on screen. So, you know, combing their hair, um, giving them a little trim, applying a lot of hair gel. There was an enormous amount of hair gel in this film. Like, I, I feel like I had sticky fingers for two years. Like, just <laughs> solid two years. There, oh, how many of us? I think there were ten of us at peak. But most of these people came from Andy Gent's workshop. So importantly, like they'd all focused on specific areas of making puppets. They all had areas of specialism, but when they came to maintenance, the most important thing was that they all got to know all the different areas. That's what I really loved about this film, was, was getting to do everything. 
like I, you know, I got to do armatures and costume and hair. I'd never done fur punching before this, um, and you know, I, I kind of love that. I want to do that again on something. And also uh, at the back in the dungarees, uh, Daisy Garside, she was our puppet wrangler. Her job was to know where every single puppet was at all times. So from the second it got delivered from Andy's workshop to, well, just the end of shoot when we packed everything up, she had to know like, where it was, who was animating it, you know, did it need repairing, all, all the information. That's a lot for one person to know. Like, I've been on other films where there have been three puppet wranglers, or like on um, Pirates, um, oh I worked on Pirates at Ardman. Um <laughs> on that one you know there were two puppet wranglers but there was, there was also two people in charge of the mouth library um, which is an exciting place to be and you did work on Fantastic Mr. Fox, right? I did. Oh, uh, I was an intern. So, yeah, they didn't let me anywhere near Wes or anything. Okay. But, yeah. were, you, were you helping with sprucing up the puppets or was Puppet no. Hospitality not? No, uh, Puppet Hospital was there. Um, and Andy Gent ran it then. Um, oh. I was making hands. Actually. Yeah. I feel like I spent a lot of years making hands and eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't change, actually. You, you keep making hands and eyes as it goes on, otherwise the puppets don't have any. But... <laughs> So another part of our job, we have to repaint things, um, an enormous amount of silicon repair. Animators destroy puppets. No. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, uh, so yeah, we were constantly making more hands and feet and um, all, all that kind of fun stuff. Do you know what tensioning is? Anyone? No, a lot of people shaking their heads. Okay, so inside the, uh, the puppets there's a, a ball and socket armature and each of these joints has a screw in it that uh, can be tightened with an Allen key. Um, and you kind of need to loosen or tighten the joints according to what the puppet needs to do and you know what the animator wants. Um, and a lot of this is done on set. We have these little bean bags that we put the puppets on and we like lie them down and cut them open stick an Allen key in them, and then tighten and loosen. Another thing we did was a lot of redressing. So we had like, families like this, um, where they'd have several different costumes, you know, to be Rex's students, or the baseball team, or this family. Um, and so yeah, we'd, we'd strip them down, uh, put some new clothes on them, and new hair, and hope that no one noticed, but I just told you, so you will. <laughs> yeah. Some of the fun stuff we got to do was specific things that Wes wanted or styling on the dogs or, you know, like when they get burned, we got to paint them up with black paint and make them look all singed and ruin them forever. They never got used in another shot after that, those puppets. But um, here we got to make um, this, like, special paw with a, um, a little claw sticking out of it to slice the bag open. Um, and we made all of these plasticine maggots, which count as puppets. They are puppets. Um, <laughs> uh, and then later on in the shot, um, when they get to the fight cloud, so we developed the whole fight cloud system in Puppet Hospital. None of these are full puppets. They're all just like an arm or a, a leg or a tail or a head, and they were sculpted by, uh, by Val, actually, from uh, the head of the sculpt department who came to join us. And yeah, we had to, so we had to kind of figure it out between the animator, um, the rigging department, um, and, and us, like how this was going to work. It ended, I don't have a picture of it, but it ended up being like a kind of like a, a monstrous claw looking thing with these balls on the end of it to attach each piece to that would rotate 
I really wish I had a picture of it. I never did take a photo. Um, and then it's separated, it's like covered in all of this cloud stuff. Um, and then if we go to the middle of the fight cloud, there's a moment where the, uh, the dog gets his ear chewed off. So that, that would be us again making um, a separate ear. Um, and then there's, there's an overscale ear later on that one of the rats eats. Um, and then like the little stub of an ear and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and all of this would go back and forth with Wes, you know, uh, the ear wasn't bloody enough, it was too bloody, it was, you know, not fluffy enough, um, all that kind of stuff, but yeah. Cool. Thank you very much. So uh, if we move on to Kim, I know that, well, you have a very enviable filmography, everyone here does. Uh, yours, I think, goes back a little further with some films like Chicken Run, yep. and uh, one of my favourite films of the last few years, uh, My Life is a Courgette, or Zucchini, depending on where you watch it, it's a beautiful film. You've been around for quite a while. I believe you studied in Brussels, was it? Yep, mm -hmm. in uh, La Combre. It's an art school. Did you go straight into feature film production, or was there...? I wish. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, of course. And at that time, because I'm quite an old lady, uh, at that time, uh, there weren't that many feature films. Um, so I graduated in 92, something like that. And then uh, uh, in Brussels and in Belgium, at that time, the, the, the stop motion didn't really exist. I did some uh, short film uh, at school in stop motion because I, I wasn't good in uh, 2D animation. And, uh, and uh, it was also a good way to touch a bit everything. I, I liked sculpting and uh, I liked the sound. I liked the um, photography. So I thought uh, stop motion was the... The really something where you can touch everything or department. So I started just uh, doing little jobs, little uh, crappy commercials. <laughs> and then uh, I worked in Germany uh, on a commercial that was good, actually. And uh, that was the really the first time I worked abroad. And that's how I realized working with uh, other um, countries and other companies just really speed up your your learning because uh, some people already invented the, you know a lot of things and when you're alone you're just trying to invent things that's been already done and also at that time internet didn't exist so we didn't have all that um, everything uh, online just uh, like uh, we are we have now so to f to I had just to experiment and then um, I applied few times once I heard about um, chicken run I applied few times to get in, and then uh, I think I had to apply three times, and I think maybe they were fed up of uh, getting my <laughs> application. And so the last time they called me, and then I started, uh, yeah, it was uh, right in the, the last four months of the shooting, but it was a really eye-opening for me, because uh, it's just to discover how shooting and uh, animating on a big scale uh, with a big crew works, and it's much, different than uh, working on commercial or, or small budget film or no budget film. So that was a big thing for me. And uh, you put a step in, in that world and then you realize it's a really small world. And then uh, that's how I got to know few people and that uh, I'm still working. I think that was the first time I worked also with Tobias. And then um, after that, I worked on the Koala Brothers where I worked with uh, uh, Tobias and uh, Mark Waring, who is uh, animation director on the on the IOD, uh, Isle of Dogs. 
Yeah, and then I got to work on the the feature film like uh, like uh, yeah, uh, Frank and Winnie and Mr. Fox and and then uh, Courgette. But Courgette on Courgette, I was uh, the animation director. I, w I didn't animate on that one, but I was supervising the animation. Yeah. I also note here on your shirt in the picture, you worked on Mexico. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. A, that's an interesting one, because I don't think that ever got a release here. You've seen, you know it, you've seen it, Maxenko? I've seen it in Annecy. Oh, really? Um, yeah. But uh, not in English, and not with subtitles. So it looks wonderful. <laughs> it's, it's this interesting sort of gem of stop-motion animation, because it's really lovely, and I think McKinnon and Saunders yeah. are the hand. It was, a, it was a feature film uh, shot in, uh, and produced in Switzerland. So that was also a great because it was a co-production also with uh, England. So we had a whole, quite a lot of uh, people still working and included uh, Andy Gent who came in uh, Switzerland to do the puppets. And then uh, we had a lot of uh, animators coming also. Well, we had the whole crew, probably two thirds of the crew was coming from uh, England and uh, there's still all the people like uh, Joe was addressing uh, we're still working together, and uh, because it was, uh, we were located in a very small village, you know, you you kind of uh, bonding together because we're just like a, there were two restaurants <laughs> in the village <laughs> and a cafe. So, so on this film, your lead animator, and the thing that I think strikes everyone as soon as they see animated Wes Anderson films, they really do look like nothing else. Like there's this very, very specific particular style to them. I'm sort of curious, like as someone who's worked on animation and all these other projects and stuff that maybe uses more conventional approaches to animation and principles of animation, was it a challenge to kind of get the animation done to his sort of specifications? For me, it wasn't that complicated. I think it's just a, some people well, they really want to have the like the classical uh, perfect animation. Wes has a very different view of uh, the animation. He's more interested in, uh, I, I think, well, he has some ideas. And uh, your job as an animator is just to deliver the idea he's got in mind. So I think my job is uh, to understand what he wants. And uh, I didn't have any problem just accepting that, uh, you know, one of his speciality of Wes is uh, like uh, his character never blinks. And uh, I don't know if you noticed that, but there is really, really, really few blinks. So you it's, uh, it's, I think you probably can count all the blinks uh, and it won't be more than uh, 50 <laughs> for the whole film, yeah. Yeah, but I think it would be 50 altogether. And then uh, also one of the things he likes, it's um, like, uh, you know, one of the most difficult things for animator, really a, a good test for an animator is to make a walk. Every animator tends to try to make a, a good walk. And actually, uh, Wes is not interested at all about your walk. He's uh, not interested to see uh, how a character walk from A to B. Because uh, what he is interested is like, uh, well, this character should start here and say something or, or acting something, and then he wants in some point to be there. And uh, he doesn't 
care about the the speed and the reality of the of the the pace. And I heard also that uh, he is doing that sometimes, even speeding up uh, the the actors sometimes when he, in his live action uh, movies. And also that gives him like a special. Um, style and character. It's, it's like like uh, the whoop, and then uh, and then uh, is uh, just staying you know, quite static, and uh, you just have to accept that and to 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 understand that. And uh, and uh, I think there've been some animator who had a bit of a hard time in the beginning just to adjust with the style. But yeah, also one thing is he likes also to have some some wind, some breeze in the in the the dog's hair. So you think. Uh, that uh, it's really difficult to make the breeze on the dog's hair, but actually, no, it's not difficult. You just move it a little bit. What was more difficult, and that's a nobody think about it, and nobody realized it, it was more difficult to not have an Atari costume moving, because uh, it's really shiny, and uh, the costume reflects the light, uh, and uh, as soon as you touch a little bit, it just make a little bump in the light, and then... Uh, that was more a nightmare, just animating Atari without uh, changing or touching the, the fabric. But that's the technical things. I think uh, what is interesting is uh, Wes is really more interested also in the acting, so, mm. yeah. I'm going just to explain quickly also what was my job, because maybe some people wonder what is a lead animator, what's the difference between lead animators or animators or key animators. My, my job was, um, uh, we were three uh, lead animators, it's me, uh, Jason Stallman, and then Anthony Alvorthy. And then our job was to, to come early on the production and then uh, to play and to test the puppets when they arrived. Because, you know, when they arrive, they're not completely... Uh, uh, you discover that things, something's not working as we want it or something could be changed. So one of the jobs was to, to do that, but also to develop the personality of, uh, of uh, the character. So the, like the Atari, the dogs, the main character. So we, were, we had like a few weeks even, I think it was two months or one month or two, just not shooting anything, but just uh, making some animation tests, making uh, dialogues and trying to see what's, uh, how the bodies, how they, they, they behave. Yeah. Yeah. I should check in to see how we're doing on time. Do we have time for audience Q&A? Yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> Let's have a Q&A. So yes, anyone has any questions to ask? Hiya. What textures would you say were the hardest to maintain or make believable for the animation? Oh, textures. Well, I mean, the, the fur generally was fairly difficult to maintain. There were some that were more... Do you know what, actually? The different scales, the, the large-scale puppets, um, they are uh, ball and socket with foam latex over them, and then this fur is kind of, like, laid beautifully over in a, in a sheet, and it's really nice. But the medium-scale dogs are all solid silicon, um, and so it's individually hair-punched. Um, so any time uh, the puppets start to go bald, which they did all the time... Um, like fur would just come off them in clumps. You have to you have to just sit down and uh, and yeah, like individually punch the fur back in, and it would take hours, hours and hours and hours. So sometimes you do just like the side of the dog that was to camera, and you'd worry about the rest of it later because you know the shot's got to get going. Um, so yeah, definitely the medium scale dogs 
were the, the hardest to maintain. Hey, um, I was just wondering, um, I got the impression that uh, you were communicating a lot with Wes by email. So I was wondering, like, how much time was he actually on set? Uh, like, was that challenging that, you know, if he wasn't around that much? I mean, he was pretty prolific with the emails, you know. <laughs> he was in constant contact. I think, how many times did you see him on, on set, Kim? Three times. Three times? Yeah, yeah. So no, not really around, but mm. he is incredibly on it with the emails, you know. He will, he will get back to you pretty quickly. Uh, so yeah, he wasn't in the, the studio that often. Um, it was all done by email. But what was quite nice about that was um, when we were sending him pictures of uh, the progress of the sculpts, uh, his replies would often include sort of a photoshopped, very roughly photoshopped suggestion of the, the direction that we should be taking. So actually that was quite, quite a useful thing. You know, ideally you'd, you'd want the director, you know, next to you giving you direction. But uh, yeah, I guess in that way it was, a, it was quite beneficial to to have him elsewhere on a computer where he can just sort of mock up things and uh, like I think that sped along the, uh, the sculpting process. Uh, hi. Uh, it seemed like the, the music and the sound design was given to the animators because it was uh, as if the animation was choreographed to the music and sound design, uh, like, like the slightest of beats, you know? For uh, some for some uh, sequence, we had we didn't have much music on uh, when we were animating. I think that's one of the thing uh, that uh, is also very good is uh, he's got the timing. Uh, so all the animated uh, the the animatic was uh, uh, edited on the timing, and uh, I think he already had few in his head. There were few. Uh, few uh, on uh, the animatic, but then also they did a lot of work in the edit uh, after, uh, in, in the end. And there is always one thing that uh, really uh, hurt my eyes. <laughs> it's uh, in one shot, it's not my shot. Uh, there's one moment I hate that. Uh, it's uh, the, because uh, they changed the music. It's uh, in the Kabuki theater. And uh, you know, you had the three drummer on the, on the, on the back. And then in one shot, they changed the music. But because it was such a big uh, shot and complicated shot, they couldn't reshoot uh, the drummer. And actually, in one shot, I can see, uh, that's the only thing I see, you know. <laughs> it's the drummer jump. There is a jump on the, on, on the loop of the drummer. I just, oh, that boy. I, can't, <laughs> I can't bear it. <laughs> <laughs> So now, next time you see it, because you will have to see it again now. <laughs> uh, just as a question from a fabricator standpoint, out of all the puppets or, and or props you made, which were the most difficult to make and maintain over the whole production? To, to make, um, personally, uh, I'd say Tracy's replacement faces, just because of all the freckles. Um, yeah, that, that almost drove me crazy. So uh, yeah, hard, that was the hardest thing I, I had to make, uh, to maintain. Uh, to maintain was the naked mayor, um, <laughs> the, the bathhouse um, shot. Uh, oh, Tim, who animated it, he's at the back of the, wave, wave, there he is. <laughs> that, was, that was several weeks of like every morning I get called into Tim's unit and there was another tear or break or just cause he's a solid silicon puppet. 
Um, and then the set gets, you know, kind of cold overnight. Um, and if it doesn't have time to warm up in the morning, like, or, or maybe he's been left in, a, in an awkward pose, you come in and like, his, his armpits ripped all the way up here, um, or like his neck's torn. There are a lot of torn necks, so many torn. There's a lot of, you, you probably noticed this in, in Wes's films, he really likes it when, you know, you've got the straight shoulders and the head like yeah. turned to the side like this. Um, and if you leave a puppet like that overnight, you're like slit throat. <laughs> Did I check Tim's fingernails? You think he's been slashing the puppets? Yeah. <laughs> no, but maybe I should have. Kim, Kim, I, I bite. <laughs> oh, he's got a microphone. <laughs> um, I've just remembered as well, Kim, you said about the shot where the hands were too big. Um, we had the same thing with the mayor holding the phone in the bathtub, the naked mayor. Uh, yeah. Do you remember, we, was it? Was I, it? I, yeah, we had to make much smaller hands for him and um, I, I cut them, I cut him off at the, the wrist there and did a, a hand transplant. <laughs> yeah. And that was fun. just as they were getting ready to launch the shot, weren't they? Was it, was it like a week delay or something like that? No, it wasn't a week. It was maybe a day. It was at least a day. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Um, in terms of like the puppet making and the whole process of it, how involved were you in like from the maquette to the sort of master sculpt to the actual molding and then casting and then fabricating everything? Uh, so I was involved with the um, the the early design maquettes and the uh, sculpting of the final puppets and all of the replacement faces. Um, that took me quite a long time into production. Um, molding, that would all be handled by uh, the head of mold, uh, Cormac, he's amazing. Um, so yeah, a lot of the things I, was, I would be sculpting, um, I would pass on to the, the other members of the team. And then you know, after, after the molding department finished, it goes on to the casting department that's run by uh, Magda, another amazing puppet maker. And then uh, they would go to like a, a trimming and seaming team. Um, yeah, the, the puppet, Studio was made up of lots of different departments. Um, there was a you know costume run by uh, Maggie Hayden. It was really amazing work. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a huge team effort. But what's nice is that uh, you know one person would specialise in, in one specific part of the puppet build, and then you pass it on to the, the next team, and then it, it yeah just keeps on in flowing in that way. Um, and I guess it, the only time it would come back to me is at the end, um, sort of checking that the uh, the faces are working correctly. Uh, sort of at the end of the process, so I'd be checking it on on camera uh, for to, to to make sure that the sculpts are still looking good and that the paint isn't sort of dancing around the face. So, yeah, so that's that's what I was involved with. This might have already been answered, but what was the reasoning behind having the uh, uh, TV screens be in 2D animation? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a. Uh I don't know. I think he wanted to have something a bit uh, Japanese also, and uh, just, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, because the graphics and the design that is a French guy who did all the the, the 2D animation design. I think he wanted to have that Japanese sense and that like uh, that uh, wood printing stamp uh, feeling and a really stylized animation. And I think it matched really well. I don't know if you you, you like it also the way. It's matching, and then um, and also one thing uh, uh, was really also clear on the, on this film is uh, the human were really like a static and really like uh, they, they they had a mask, 
And that, that, that's not uh, just by accident. It's just he wanted to have like a facial, not too much uh, details and uh, emotion, not too much uh, tiny details or emotion. But uh, while for the, the dogs, that was completely the opposite. He wanted a really like a very uh, a tiny uh, animation details and uh, and uh, like the fur moving, the fur being alive, and the the, the, the eyebrows. The, and uh, the, I think uh, the 2D animation also, because a lot of the time the 2D animation is the presentator and uh, the Kobayashi, or it's uh, most of the time it's human and not the dogs. And when we see the dogs, it's, uh, it's uh, a lot of uh, action dogs. It's not like a, t a talking dog. So we never see the dogs talking, of course, on screen. It's only just action uh, dogs. Yeah. Oh. Thank you very much. I think we have to wrap now, but uh, I'd like to say thanks <laughs> once again to Josh, Terry, and Tim. That, that's cool. dignified squeal <laughs> indicates that we are joined by uh, the key members of the Cardiff Animation Festival team uh, for this linking segment. Hello, Laura Dom and Danny Abram. How are you? Hello, Ben. Great, thank you. We're a little bit delirious at this point. We're, at, uh, we're on the last day as we're recording this. It's a Sunday on top of three very full days of... Um, uh, your first full-on animation session. Four full days. How, whose four idea full was days. it to do four days? I think it was Arden Bailey. I think we've got him to blame. <laughs> we were going to do three days, and then uh, it was going to be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then we were talking about the industry day. We were like, what's best, Friday, Saturday or Sunday? And everyone was like, none of those are going to work. <laughs> none of the industry are going to come because they just want to clock off early on Friday. So we were like, OK, that's fine. We'll add a Thursday, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fine. And now we're dying. And now we're dying, but it's gone, it's gone really well, I think. Yeah. Now, people were really excited about the industry day. Like yeah. I was saying before, there were some people who actually came down just for that day yeah. and yeah. had to go back, but yeah. you know, they, they, there were definitely things that they got a kick out of. Yeah, so. well, I was worried that people wouldn't be as excited for it because in a way it's like a bit worky. So for us, like we were like, okay, everyone's going to have loads of fun on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Thursday will be like serious worky day. But <laughs> I think it was good fun as well. And yeah, we ended definitely. it off with um, Cardiff Animation Nights, which is yeah. we run bi-monthly as well, and people yeah, love that. Well it's really popular yeah. and, and it's got a nice vibe and stuff so at least anyone that stayed around could go to I, I suppose this is where it all started though Cardiff Animation Nights for mm. yourself and for the team you, you uh, began this screening to showcase the international uh, animated films that were out there and to, to get them to Cardiff and yeah. then and here we are uh, you know that was 2014 here we yeah. are 2018 yeah, you've exactly. got this you know four-day extravaganza of, of oh. animations it natural progression or tell them about the first one that you did where... okay so we, we started it Cute. off we started it off in this tiny little space in a bar but a, a different bar than it is now and it and it's uh, there were about 25 people there and we were all watching Jan Spankmeyer's surviving life which was fab but straight away we were like, no, we should be showing shorts because this is the whole reason that like, we would loved going to festivals. Well, I say we, it was me at this point and I loved 
going to festivals and seeing really inspiring short films, there's nothing like watching a short film programme with an audience. And that's what I found so special about it. So straight away I was like, no, 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 not features or show shorts. And, um, and none of us knew each other at this point. So we all got together through the animation nights growing and people finding out about it and coming along and going, oh, I'd like to help out if you need any help. And it was, first of all, it was Chris and it was Danny and yeah. then it was somebody else. I emailed Lauren and said, please, can we be best friends now? <laughs> <laughs> I found Cardiff Animation Nights and I moved to Cardiff. And uh, I was uh, working and didn't really know anyone in the city at that point. So I found Cardiff Animation Nights and now we're like, that's it. <laughs> You work together outside of the festival as well, don't you? Yeah, I've involved Danny in every aspect we of my life. We are so enjoying <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a short at the moment, a 12-minute short, funded by Film Company's Beacon Scheme, which is a cool thing. If anyone's based in Wales, you should know about that. It's a good thing. Google Film Company Wales. Um, and Danny's helping with it. Danny's like the main person helping and is well, it's your role in charge of making everything fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you'll say on IMDB, isn't it? That's the title. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren's like the dreamer, like, oh, can we do this weird thing with water and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how the hell are we going to make that work for the budget? Technical director. But like, not, yeah, like technical that. director. Yeah. I don't know. Encompasses everything though. On the do pep talks as well. Pep talks. Yeah. Head of pep talks. Head of rigging. Head of yeah. making Lauren's film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Head up around and down. Yeah. When, whenever yeah. it's required. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I'm available. You can just tweet me. <laughs> and I'll give you a pep talk. Either way. It's a bit of positivity. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's nearly coming to the end of this festival. How are you feeling about it? I feel really happy. I think it's gone. I mean, we'll never be 100% happy, I don't think ever. And but, we know uh, all the ins and outs. That's a spirit. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's an important point though. Like, we yeah, we yeah. know all the ins and outs and all the things that we're, all the near misses. And yeah. we're in this stress bubble of, oh, we haven't done this thing or we forgot this or where's yeah, that? Yeah. And everyone else is coming up to us saying, like, this is a really well run event and we're having a great time. And we're like, are you? Amazing. <laughs> oh my God, thank you. Tell all your friends. <laughs> Yeah. You finally got the euphoria as well. I did. Oh my gosh! When Isle of Dogs got seated, and Claire introduced the screening, and then you went up and did the screening, I came straight out, and every seat is full, and everyone is there because they love the same thing I love. And I yeah. went into the foyer and cried, and volunteers had to get me water. <laughs> I was like, Here it for is. more tears. She needs more water to make more tears. I am so dehydrated. <laughs> Interesting euphoria. Yeah. Yeah. It was happy tears. Happy tears. So happy, and everyone was like, "What's wrong?" And I'm like, "Everything's so great." And yeah. How about you, Lauren? Because when I saw you standing on a bench trying to get something off a wall. Yeah, um, no, I feel good, I feel good now. I feel pleased that we, there's not much chance left to get it all wrong. <laughs> it seemed like, I mean, there was, 
we were talking about you know the events and stuff and you know Trampires was amazing the various sort of launches and panels and whatever uh, it did seem that Isle of Dogs in terms of the overall festival vibe there was a bit of a culmination you know and it felt like that was sort of what kind of cemented I think because Josh is so involved with us on yeah, the team as well yeah, yeah. and he did so many sneaky little special things that we weren't ex- I don't I wasn't expecting the video I knew a tiny bit Did from you? emails, you? so I was like, oh I want to be in there. And it was the one that all the volunteers were fighting over. Oh that my God, so we needed so, one so person to be So we were feeling the hype out. as well because the yeah. team were like, we want to yeah. be in there, we want to be in yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. This must be really good then. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say that and Champers, because also Laura yeah, yeah. from our team was the um, the chair for the Champers panel, and it was cool to yeah. see Laura talk. And Danny did a talk on Friday, and it's it's cool to see everybody stepping yeah. up and being. We're all so entwined. I think the thing that makes us maybe a little bit different is that we're working animators. Yeah. So yeah. we're really really tied up in all these projects that we're celebrating yeah. because I worked on Champers. Toph worked on everything, Josh has worked on everything, and we're all on this team bringing on these things to these people, and when we get to see other people enjoying it, that's when you cry. <laughs> it's a wonderful celebration of all that that kind of hard work and bringing yeah. it all together because there's not many, you know, to, to, to pin a date in the calendar to have this kind of, you know, pat, pat on the back or this kind of, you know, yeah, we, we, we're creating, you know, fantastic stuff. It's uh, it's very commendable. I so, feel yeah. really cool. You are cool. Do you know when um, you're working and you, you just you, you hate the temperature of the room and this shot's doing your head in and After Effects is killing you and there's all sorts of things wrong and everyone moans because it's boring at some point or whatever and then right. you get together in a festival and realise actually we're really cool and this is <laughs> the best life we could be living. And animation is cool. We are so cool. We all work at animation <laughs> and like. It takes a festival. It takes organising a festival for me to realise. I think that was the euphoria. Yeah, I think I'm still talking from a point of euphoria. Yeah. <laughs> well, it has been an absolutely spectacular weekend. I think oh, that, amazing! Um, I'm so glad you could. I mean, we're all hoping it would be. Um, <laughs> you know, I did. I mean, we were all rooting for you in one sense, but we also did one a, a nice weekend away. <laughs> it's been really fun. It's been we just great. We couldn't do a festival without the squiggly. No, no way. <laughs> thank you so much for being involved. And thank you oh for God, doing God. all of your panels. Thank you stand. for being the if, if I can show my face somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And thank you, Steve, because Manchester Animation Festival is such a big inspiration to us. To, to us. To us. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah, yeah, because you were uh, <laughs> doing Manchester as well, like um, fairly recently as a festival. It's just on its third edition, so it's been two and a bit years. Uh, I guess about three years now since you started. Mm. Um, so you've kind of been through in the trenches as well. Were you there? Were you kind of giving advice on? The do's and don'ts, or yeah, we, we were trying to sabotage it as much as possible. And so, so they've, they've <laughs> like, yeah, what you should do is you just sell the tickets really cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, um, we, uh, I, I don't think there was much that we could say really. You know, it's 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 uh, uh, it's all down to it's got its own its own flavour. You know, you've been doing it since 2014, Lauren. It's yeah. it's just a case of making it bigger and. And, and getting more people down for it. Danny, you, you help us out a hell of a lot with Manchester Animation <laughs> Festival. You know, you're the, the kind of the voice of the festival on Instagram and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's that kind of, it was, it was just destined to be, Cardiff was destined to work anyway. So there's not much in terms of Manchester Animation Festival I influence uh, I can really pinpoint, really. 
I guess the uh, festivals are best mates. I think yeah. that's the best way of putting it. Yeah. Festivals. <laughs> when it sort of felt like it's felt like a very kind of natural progression. I, I enjoyed the kind of independent film festival yeah, yeah. at the Animation Strand as part of that. That was really the only part of it I was there yeah. for. But the sense that we would come away from was that was great. I wish there was a bit more. Yeah. yeah. And so this has been absolutely perfect that finally it's sort of beyond being a strand of a festival yeah. it's its own thing. As a lot of people have said, time was, Cardiff was, you know, the festival to be at. I think it would be a pretty easy route from this point on when you consider how much things have progressed in the last few years. I could see this being something that, you know, has staying power, absolutely. Well, I certainly hope so because it's quite close to where I live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whenever I heard about the old, the old uh, Cardiff, I only hear about the parties, really. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, there's been some parties this time, which is fantastic. But I think people will remember the, you know, the the, the talks and things like that as well. Where you know, as well as the excuses to get absolutely bladdered. Yeah. Um, so. You know, it's got it. It's the the, <laughs> the new generation. It's here. It's uh, <laughs> it's established. It's good. So. Um, it says nowhere on this brochure about whether it's coming back next year. Uh, <laughs> watch this space. I, <laughs> I know it's like super the normal thing to do to announce the next festival at the festival you're at, but we have no idea. Do you know Lauren's getting married next year? How the hell? Hang on, are you getting married? You're making a 12-minute short film, <laughs> and you're putting and you're putting on an animation festival. Because I'm making you put on an animation festival. You do that as well. I mean, we can't not, right? I really, I really want to do it. We, uh, we just need to drum up the right supporters. We, we keep saying, saying it. We keep saying it next year. Next yeah. year, we'll learn that for next year. Like joking, we'll learn yeah. it for next year. Yeah, um, yeah. We couldn't have done it without the financial support that we had this year, but um, yeah. we really, really need more. So, we're, yeah, dependent on the, these conversations and stuff. But hopefully, we'll know more. Soon. Hopefully, this has been a, a really great proof of concept. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, everyone I've, I've spoken to at the venue also seem quite enamoured of it. Like they've, they've seen. We have been such a pain in their (laughs) necks and I feel so pleased that they don't hate us at this point. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. It is. It, I'll just being from. It is possible to get married and put on an animation festival at the same time. So you you, you, you can do it but with the right <laughs> team around you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't don't worry. Um, uh, I mean, you've got a great team here, haven't you? Uh, there's you guys. There's 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 everyone else who mentioned Chris and uh, and everyone who works on it, Laura. Uh, you can do it. You can put it. You can, you can you can do it for uh, for 2019. I'm sure. And we'll all look forward to it as well. Is it 2019 next year? Yeah, that's usually how it works. <laughs> I'm sorry, that wasn't it. <laughs> it's fine, I'm really tired. <laughs> I'll let you have that one then. <laughs> um, Can I just say I'm so excited to be on Squidly Podcast? You have been on it before. I have I been on it before? No, no, that was, I didn't count though, because that was a panel that you just recorded. Well, okay, <laughs> fair enough. This is yeah. an actual interview. That wasn't a special, Ben. <laughs> this is an actual interview with Ben and Steve off of Squiggly oh, Podcast. Technically, it's a, a, technically it's a link. Oh, oh no! <laughs> oh, I've got to go make a film and get on it proper. Fine. Bloody I'll hell. make sure I put in the metadata. Special guest team from Isle of Dogs and Daniel Lauren. That would make me really happy. Well, thanks for um, being on the podcast and talking oh, yeah. us through the first ever Cardiff Animation Festival. Uh, hopefully, many more in the future. 
Thanks so much for having us. This has probably been the most hysterical interview we've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> we've caught you on the last day of the festival, it's expected. So, yeah. <laughs> So we've just been talking about how much we love Isle of Dogs. I assume you're both fans as well. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I know. I'm the only one it's, who hasn't seen it. It's good. You should see it. You should show it. <laughs> yeah. I had to do a lot of stuff, and the volunteers are so cute, and like I'm, I'm such a soft touch. They all wanted to watch it, and I was like, go on then, I'll send some emails. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can watch things when you run a festival. No, I watched half of it, yeah, and then I had to you run only out have and do half something. A brain, but I can tell you, the first half of it is absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> Ian loved it, and that's my benchmark. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I can't um, wait. To, I can't wait to watch it. Honestly. So we just heard from uh, a bunch of the people who worked on it. Um, we have another interview with Tim Allen. Uh, not uh, Tim, Tim Allen, Allen in the Buzz Lightyear sense. Uh, <laughs> Tim Allen is another force of nature when it comes to the world of stop motion. Mm -hmm. He's worked on pretty much everything you've heard of and a few things you probably haven't heard of as well. When he's not working on animated films, he's doing workshops all over the world. He's, uh, yeah, he's just a very in-demand, very talented fellow. So we'll be hearing uh, Laura Beth talking to Tim in a sec. Good luck, uh, Tim. Why don't we just, uh, we'll, hear, we'll hear it now. <laughs> Let's do that. It's our podcast. Let's we can do what we want then. <laughs> Let's do it now. I'll splice it in halfway through the other segment. <laughs> I'll go avant-garde with it. It's about time. I'm sorry, I just really wanted to ruin everything you were doing then. <laughs> <laughs> so here's Laura Beth talking with Tim Allen, key animator on Isle of Dogs. Can you um, tell us a little bit about your past work? I know this could this could be an entire podcast in itself, but still... <laughs> Uh, oh, I don't know where to start. Um, I've been animating for um, 18 years now professionally. Um, it all started with um, kids series work, initially kids educational work, and then I uh, leapt from show to show doing um, all sorts of kids series from Postman Pat, Fifi the Flower Tots, Fireman Sam, as many things as I could do really. And that slowly led to me uh, earning an audition on um, Corpse Bride. So I was very, very, very grateful to be able to work on the next big Tim Burton film at the time. And I got a really good role on that particular film doing the main bad guy, um, Barkis. Uh, and that then, as these things do, you, I've, I've done a lot of travelling. So um, I did Peter and the Wolf in Poland after that, Creature Comforts USA at Ardman. And it didn't really stop there. I, um, <laughs> I've done all sorts of feature films now these days. I've done, I did Frank and Weenie. I, did, I was the animation supervisor on Magic Piano, which is a ri ridiculous but beautiful project that more people need to see that I, I also did in Poland. I was um, animation supervisor on um, Disney's Club Penguin TV specials, uh, an animator on Chuck Steele, and just recently finished as a key animator on um, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. Oh, and I did Fantastic Mr. Fox as well for a bit. <laughs> but as well as that, I've also had a bit of a side career um, as a stop-motion teacher. And that in itself has had its own path, going around being a, a guest lecturer and these days doing animation workshops where that's more where other people come and they animate and I mentor them through that. It's been 18 years of travelling around a lot <laughs> and I've been very, very lucky to work with so many different people in so many different countries on such a wide variety of projects. So what was it wor like working with Wes for the first time on Fantastic Mr Fox? 
Um, working with Wes for the first time was, I was very, very grateful to be there because I came on at the end of the project and I, I almost missed the boat. And really, that particular relationship with Wes, Wes is very hands-on about all sorts of intricate little details. And so really, it's a case of um, you talk through how you th you think he wants the shot. He then might correct you on a few things. But it's quite technical in terms of um, the positions that he wants, the exact timing he wants a character's head to turn. So... It's, it was slightly less of a I creatively go for it. It's more that we we map out every little beat of that particular shot in detail, and then I just realise that. He's a he's a very specific way of dealing with animation that's quite unlike any other kind of feature take on stop motion, where it's very controlled movement. Yes. The, there's there's definitely a kind of Wes style that you you get quite quickly. When I, I remember when I first started on Fantastic Mr. Fox, I did a, um, a few tests, uh, just a bit of dialogue um, with Fox himself, where I was trying to get a feel for the Wes style, and my stuff was too smooth and flowing and had lots of interesting subtleties of animation. It was a bit too similar to my work on Corpse Bride, to be honest, and I had to learn to really simplify things the Wes style things move uh, in a beat it kind of moves then moves then moves mm. um, it's got quite a punchy stylized way to it and whenever a character sort of looks from the facing camera to the side um, you don't do something like um, curve the head down on a slight arc it's just directly moving it from a to b mm. um, and that was the same with any motion if your character's picking something up you don't do any flamboyant Richard Williams style dragging or breaking of the joints you just literally go from here to there just straight and just punchy so it, it takes a bit of time to do um, so little to just animate in such a very sim it sounds wrong to say simplistic it makes it sound basic but you're tempted to put all these extra embellishments in that you've learned on other productions mm -hmm. um, so most people start um, it was the same with Isle of Dogs that I saw some animators start and their initial tests were beautiful, flowing animation, um, but completely still in the style of Laika or wherever else they'd come from. Mm. So it took people a little while to learn this very simplistic, move it directly from A to B style. Okay. So on Isle of Dogs, what was the biggest challenge for you? Oh, that's an interesting question because... Um, um, I'm quite happy to say that I don't get particularly intimidated by challenges anymore. I see a challenge as something quite exciting to get my head around. I had to do a shot where the mayor at the very end of the film is contemplating whether he was wrong all this time. And he has a huge um, uh, moment where his conscience gets to him mm. and this teardrop forms from his eye and runs down his cheek. So we did the, um, the block, the rehearsal, uh, and it was a chance for me to try using glycerin to do the okay. teardrop. And I, I got it to run down and get a, a really nice shape. And Wes was very happy with the teardrop. He wanted it exactly like that. But then just as I was about to start the shot, he decided that he wanted the face to change because all the, all the human characters have got a relatively small number of replaceable faces. Now, the problem is, when that teardrop is running down the face, 
and then the face changes to a different one, I've literally got to move this mm. mask, if you yeah. will, that the face off the puppet and put a different one on. But the glycerin teardrops meant to look the same. It wears like often things to be very, very still. So I couldn't do any um, large movement of the head to help disguise it. So I can't remember if it was the start of the shot or even if it was mid-shot that Wes decided, oh, let's have this face instead. Um, so trying to match the glycerin teardrop without it looking like a really big pop was oh, pretty God. tricky. Yeah. So that, that, was a, that, that was a pretty interesting challenge, shall we say. And I was using it. I was having to be very fiddly with the cocktail stick to do it. Is the, uh, the the detailed stop motion animated <laughs> purist answer as to how did you do it? Fiddly with a cocktail stick. <laughs> I remember that scene and being like, "That's a really hard thing to get across because he's been so very that character's been very stoic the entire time, and there isn't a huge amount of explanation as to why." But f- so to sort of get him to sort of flip flop on his ideals and it not seem like he's just flip flopping in to make the narrative work is very difficult. Mm. And this kind of comes down to an animator to be able to do that. And also, you've got a lot of limitations because those faces, uh, he hasn't got any eyebrow movement or any um, mouth movement. So all I've really got is actually moving the eyeballs themselves to try and convey all this feeling of um, his conscience getting to him. Um, I I did those whole series of shots there. So I did the one where um, there's this steam that comes out of his nose. Oh, yes. And I... Uh, he, he he's fuming with rage. You have to have this huge build-up, like a kettle boiling of rage, and uh, this steam comes out of his nose. Although I can't remember in the final film how much of that they actually used. And then, of course, he suddenly has this moment of going, "Maybe I was wrong." And then that feeling starts to build and build and build and becomes a teardrop. And yes, it was a lot of a lot of really subtle change of emotion. When I have it, when I've got a face that can't move, yeah, <laughs> just, just eyeballs and slight movements of the head. And it seems I've got quite a lot of that in my career. I did all these stuff in Peter of the Wolf, where Peter sees his duck being eaten mm-hmm. in front of him. Um, so you have to have the build-up of um, what was it? Starting off with complete shock, then that slowly goes into absolute horror, which goes into realization, which goes into um, trembling up the spine I, I can't remember um, mm. even yesterday I, I did a shot where a character she starts off um, trying to pick something up but realizes that she can't physically touch anything then she starts frantically trying to pick it up because she's going into panic about this then she goes into a full-blown panic attack then she tries to calm herself down and then really focus and really concentrate on trying to pick it up all in one shot, that's a lot of change of emotion. There's a lot of state changes as well. Absolutely. I've never animated a panic attack before. That was interesting. (laughs) I had to to calm down at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) So going from challenge, what was your favourite shot to do? On Isle of Dogs. Mm. The one that's leapt into my head straight away is the one where the mare gets up from the bathtub and for a split second you see him completely stark naked from behind 
and then um, Domo comes and covers him with a bath towel and they all walk off together. Mm, okay. It, it was just a lot going on. It was a fun shot, lots of challenges. Um, Wes was very specific about how much you'd see of a gap between the, the mayor's bum cheeks. Um, <laughs> he wanted this little triangle between his bum cheeks and, his, and the top of the bathtub. Okay. He was only meant to be there for just that split second. I can't remember. Maybe it was 12... 14 frames before Domo's covered him with the towel. So getting the towel, getting Domo in there with the towel quick enough had to be timed just right. And then you got all the um, technical aspects to it too. Like I had to pin the, the towel to Domo's hands so that it would hang properly and I could um, uh, let it swing from Domo's hands, let it pivot. I had cling film water that um, flowed off the mare, which was... Uh, that was kind of just um, lying there off the edge of the hot tub and off the mare, and I was very much just shoving it around, really. Mm. And then they had to all leave shot very, very fast and look natural. Um, oh, and we had quite an issue that there wasn't actually space on the set pretty much for the mare to walk past the hot tub and the little furnace next to the hot tub. Okay. Even had to show Wes a photograph of the set from the side to show... You can't actually have Domo and the mayor walking off next to each other like that because there's physically not space for them to do it. Mm. So it's one of the few times that, because when, when Wes wants something compositionally, that's what he wants and that's what you have to give him. And we physically couldn't do it. So we had to try and show him a shot, a photo from the side to demonstrate, can we please rethink this? Yeah. Um, so yeah, loads of challenges and a really satisfying, funny shot. Yeah, I'm very happy with that one. It was one of my favourite shots, actually. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, it was very nice to go and see it at the exhibition as well. They had a, a very nice display of that set, so that was lovely. And the backdrop is beautiful. That mm. wonderful painted, the tiled wall backdrop, which was all hand-painted, by the way. Oh, wow. We were trying to work out whose living room that would go in at the end of uh, the film. <laughs> Wes's. <laughs> yes, it'll be Wes's, yes. <laughs> he gets first dibs. I Actually, talking about... I was. I think I read somewhere, uh, probably on your Instagram, about how you, because of the detail of it, but also the size and scale of a lot of the sets, they were really hard to animate around. The bar was particularly hard. A lot of the sets aren't too bad because they're very flat. Um, and so many of them would, would hang up on a wall quite nicely because they're, you know, they're, they're fairly flat, simple sets. But the bar in particular, which I didn't animate, that was mostly Chago's sequence and then Sergio finished it but they both really struggled to squeeze in to get there i remember it's a pretty painful shot for, for them <laughs> to work on because you're in a very very cramped conditions but on the whole the, the wes anderson style of sets are quite a flat floor flat backdrop they're quite easy to build in different sections and and take apart okay. and, and wes only really wants to see all the sets from that one particular angle normally so it's all designed from the camera angle. So, and he, he'll design the the scale of the sets and all the props that goes in it. They'll make um, polyboard cutouts and make it all out of polyboard in front of the camera to check all the sizes and the proportions before they go ahead and make everything properly. Okay. And certainly in those meetings, they're they're talking and thinking about animator access. So, generally speaking, it's not 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 the worst thing in the world. I've certainly worked on some sets where there's very bad animator access and still get the back pain sometimes to show for it. Oh, Jesus. One of the things that I always find quite noticeable about 
Wes's films, um, both Fantasmus Fox, but especially Isle of Dogs, is his decision to use practical and in-camera effects for like smoke and stuff. Can you tell me about how that affects the process of animating and how you feel about that yourself as an animator? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, aesthetically, I think it's really endearing. Um, mm. The audience as a whole seem to really get a kick out of knowing it's cotton wool smoke um, or it's cling film water. Um, so um, in, in, a, in the era now where we can do anything with visual effects, I think that the charm of seeing um, more tactile um, elements being used uh, is one of the things that really stood out about Fantastic Mr. Fox. And, and obviously he took it to a, another level on Isle of Dogs. Um, we actually had um, our animation supervisor, Tobias um, Foraker, was a huge part of his job was testing all of the um, effects for the shots that were coming, looking at um, ways of visually doing the fire um, or the when they're... Um, when the characters are in the sewer and that um, they're going, they've been dragged along in the torrent of water. Uh, Tobias and his team of assistant animators were trying all sorts of tests for maybe doing the water like this, maybe doing it like that, which Wes would then comment on, and Tobias and his team would then have another go at. So it was a pretty much a full-time operation developing all those um, special effects, and I find it fun to do. I did all sorts of things with. Um, cling film coming out of um, ladles or um, cotton wool or wadding for steam coming out of the mare's nose. The fire in the furnace, which was just little bits of lighting gel with a light underneath and me prodding the lighting gel around with a cocktail stick to give it a flicker effect. Um, it, I, I find that for stuff good fun. It, it, it's experimental. It's not meant to be completely realistic. And therefore, you can just have fun yeah. trying stuff out with it. There's a thing about having practical effects in stop motion when everything else is in camera. It always is really... I don't know whether it's just because, obviously, I have a more acute eye for this kind of stuff because I pretty much only watch animations. But when a film is very hands-on, except for then the special effects, it, I always find it really jarring. I agree. I mean, you, you could do it in CG, but you either find a a stylization, a, a way of um, giving it a certain look. Mm. Or, I mean, even if you just try to make it look as photorealistic as possible, that is jarring with the, I mean, Loaf and Death obviously is the, the Nick Park famously plasticine style, so a really nice CG explosion wouldn't necessarily work. Um, and it's, it's there's something really cool about seeing a cotton wool mushroom cloud. Yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> The fight clouds, uh, which is when all the dogs would fight the robot dogs in um, Isle of Dogs or the dog catchers, um, they were really wonderful to watch them developing those because the rigging department would build it's almost like a tree of ball and socket arms, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which would go out. And, of course, on the end of those ball and socket arms would be a dog leg or a head or a robot dog uh, leg and loads of other bits of cotton wool. So it was quite a complicated looking rig inside of it with all these elements that could then be moved about in a fairly manic way. Um, so they've got a kind of rough and ready look to them, but there was a lot of um, uh, preparation to, to get it to that stage. 
It's a really nice thing to see as well because that's obviously normally that a fight cloud is a 2D aesthetic yeah. and it can just look a bit static because you obviously have to rotate the cloud as well as rotating whatever's coming out of it but that those things stay stationary because they're obviously meant to be on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. I think we get the joke as well straight away as you say it's mm. a 2D thing or something you'd expect to see in the Beano. Yes. Um in a, in, a co- in a comic book. It's like um, a clouds so we, when they come off when like someone's run, like in the shape of the person. Exactly, yes. Yeah, we didn't do that in the film, I don't think. Let's send the idea to Wes, he can do it in the next one. And also working with a fur as well um, mm. is not something that comes up that often because obviously Kubo had the monkey character that has full, but they they put so much silicon and everything through that fur that wasn't, that wasn't ever going to move. Uh, yes. Where obviously with Wes, he kind of leans into the idea of lag and noise and and it works because absolutely it's something i noticed in the very one of the first scenes with the dogs where it's the constant movement is worked because he just puts a wind effect on it so it makes it yeah exactly um i've i've lost count how many times people have come up to me and said about fantastic mr fox i love the way the fur moves it's seems to be something that really enchanted so many people and it's something that really stuck with them um and peculiarly enough on on fantastic mr fox we uh, the animators were given a straw a, a standard drinking straw so we could just lightly blow Amazing. over the the face of all the um the furry characters to get that slight boil so it was an intentionally done um obviously some of the fur would move anyway when you had to physically manhandle the puppet's face to get some of the mouth shapes, for example. But we'd still blow to artificially create that boiling effect. And then, of course, on Isle of Dogs, he wanted the same effect of the fur boiling, but this time it was made intentional um, to be like um, a gust of wind. In fact, we had many animator meetings at the beginning um, where Mark Waring, the animation director, would always describe it like there's a gentle breeze on Trash Island. Yeah. So whenever characters are outside or in the open, there'll be this little gust pushing their fur about, which made it a little bit more tricky to animate than on Fantastic Mr. Fox that was a bit random with the fur. Mm. On this one, you had to continue the fur moving in a certain direction Okay. and then slowly take it back again. And it's got it's got various hair gels and things in the fur on Isle of Dogs, but... um. Uh, you'd find certain hairs moved easier than others. I mean, when we're not talking about you have to move every every bit of hair on every single frame, you find little clusters and little areas that um, uh, seem to move quite well. Um, but also, if they're meant to be like junk dogs, their their fur would be matted, so that works with that anyway as well. Yeah, exactly. They all were meant to have that scraggy look, like they were abandoned dogs outside. So. Mm. Um, uh, it, it helped if they had beautiful soft fur that would be more of a pain but of course uh, the female dog nutmeg it's had pretty beautiful <laughs> well-conditioned um fur for a dog that's been abandoned on trash island yeah but um, it's nice when um the animation technique can marry so well with the narrative and it's not a hindrance it's just it's helping it's playing with both and they yeah. sort of have an ebb and flow kind of system yeah, I agree. It's it felt like a completely justified thing. Their fur should look like that, and it should move like that. I even sometimes was ask, would ask, um, okay, we're indoors for this shot in a fairly confined area. 
do you still want the fur to move? Mm. Is that just an outside rule? Um, and generally, Wes likes things to feel like they're still alive. He likes this little bit of movement. So whether it's a character breathing or just a slight boiling, because um, Atari's hair was a bit like Velcro, really. Mm. I'd often just touch it in a few places just to give it a slight shimmering. Um, he didn't like anything to feel static. Um, in fact, we use the term animated stillness all the time. Because <laughs> a lot of the shots are like a um, very much a planned composition. Uh, and you'll see the characters stay pretty still. Um, yeah. But he wants just this slight movement. So the phrase animated stillness was repeatedly used for to describe. <laughs> what do you want those characters to do? Oh, they can just be an animated stillness. <laughs> Which is notoriously a nightmare in animation because you always want to move everything, especially in stop motion, when you're just looking at it for a thousand frames and you're like, oh, they haven't done anything for ages. Yes, you have to be quite disciplined to know to do the um, the less is more approach. Mm. And also you need um, a quite a lot of control of the puppets if they're going to move just a very small amount. Well, either you want very well made or very well rigged puppets or you need to have a could play with them as an animator just to feel how they're rigged down and if I touch it here am I able to control this very subtle breathing action so you have a little play with them beforehand just to get a sense of how they move and how you how you touch them so the film has a very like comedically dark and also darkly heartwarming story throughout how have you found the uh, general response to the film you know what the last few weeks have been uh, incredibly humbling and satisfying. I've had so many people message me or come to see me and just tell me how much they loved it. Um, I mean, Wes's films are notoriously a bit eccentric and um, unique in their own right. So there's a lot of people that say, my God, it, it was really weird, but I really loved it. <laughs> um, uh, there's obviously been, I've had a few people comment about uh, you know his take on Japan, but um, on the whole, I've, I've really um, just had nothing but really, really warm responses. And the exhibition in London, um, that's been stormingly popular. I don't think they ever expected it to be as popular as it was. But I believe it probably was looking at the end of the last day like 50,000 visitors would have gone. Wow. Plus, it's been all over social media as well. People mm. are forever posting things on my Facebook wall at the moment and, and tagging me in to do with Isle of Dogs. Um, I've never in my whole career worked on a project where I've had so much overwhelmingly enthusiastic response to a film that I've worked on. Um, That's great. I've, I've also never seen such a big marketing campaign. Yeah. <laughs> I've worked on quite a few films that have disappeared shortly afterwards and they've really got behind this one um, and really put it out there. So for what is probably the longest production of my life i think i've spent more hours on that film than anything else um for it to go down so well and for everyone to be talking about it um that's incredibly satisfying i've got this nice warm satisfying feeling <laughs> so thank you tim allen talking to laura beth cowley there uh, about his role on isle of dogs and i believe it's still out there in cinemas at the moment if you haven't seen it like the two people who run this festival haven't seen it yet get on that because it's a great film it's uh it's probably my favorite film of the year so far uh, i appreciate the year is far from over 
but uh, I would say it's a strong contender. Very strong contender. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it, and I would encourage anyone to go see it as well. Mm-hmm. Even if you're a cat person, you know, yeah. watch it with a cat person. She loved it as well, so there you go. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, I think uh, on that merry note, uh, we can bid you a fond adieu. Thank you for joining us. And uh, hopefully, if you didn't make it to the Cardiff Animation Festival this time around, uh, hopefully it will be around again next year. Uh, we heartily recommend it, as I'm sure you picked up on at this point. Support uh, the Cardiff Animation Nights in the meanwhile, I would say. Yeah, you can check them out at cardiffanimation.com. Uh, it's a website which goes through all the events they do during the year, as well as the main festival. They do great work. Thanks again for joining us. Of course, it's squiggly.com is our website where we do all our animation coverage. You probably are aware of it if you're listening to this podcast. That was a nice thing. A guy came up to me today and he said he's here because he heard about it on the Squiggly podcast. Oh, nice. Um, so it's nice to know that we're, we're having a little bit of effect. Um, he was also invited as a filmmaker, but I think it helped him make his decision. So yeah, podcasts are what we do, like this one you're actually listening to now. Interviews, features, news, reviews, etc. We're on Twitter at Squiggly. I'm on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. Squiggly is on Instagram at Squiggly Animation. Facebook is Squiggly Magazine. Uh, I think that's all the main bases. It's very comprehensive, Ben. You've got you've covered all the bases. So yeah, follow us everywhere you can. Stalk the shit out of us. Tell people about the podcast. Yeah, keep doing that. And we'll keep making them. <laughs> I think that's all, Sherrod. Thanks again. I'll talk to you all soon. Bye bye. Bye-bye, in Welsh. <laughs>